How about that cigar? How about that cigar? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome live to the Drew Estate Cigar Studios for episode 119 of How About That Cigar Live. Thank you so much for joining us live on Facebook, live on YouTube. And for those of you listening after the fact on the audio podcast, thank you so much for listening while you drive down the road or work out whatever it is you do when you listen to your favorite audio podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 119. Again, live from the Drew Estate Cigar Studios. And let's remind everyone once again about DE25. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Drew Estate and the rebirth of cigars movement. To celebrate this movement's occasion, the company is inviting you to its epic blowout birthday bash entitled DE25. DE25 will be held on September 25th at the South Fork Ranch in Parker, Texas. The DE25 celebration will include the unveiling of Drew Estate's newest brands with first-to-experience approach for consumers and trade partners together. The DE25 event extravaganza will begin at 2 p.m. with a tailgate pre-party. Attendees will enjoy appetizers, Drew Estate cigar brand, sensory activations, and other new experiences that the company is planning to roll out exclusively for this event, all the while savoring their favorite Drew Estate cigars. The celebration will ramp up at 6 p.m. when guests are invited inside the beautiful event space for the full Monty experience, including live music performances, a full dinner, lots of great spirits, and even more Drew Estate swag and cigars. During DE25, Drew Estate will debut its major brand releases as well as several new cigar sizes to existing brands, giving guests the exclusive opportunity to be the first to see, touch, and smoke them. For more info, please visit DrewEstate.com slash DE25. So, Garrett is uh, at the cabin again this evening. How are you this evening, sir? Oh, it is. It's beautiful up here i love being up here we are in uh north westish wisconsin and um right now it's like it's like 76 degrees but no breeze at all okay uh, well i saw it, some uh, i saw some fishing pictures that you had up uh yesterday dude i caught a monster um the biggest bass i've ever caught on this lake um, I would guess about four and a half pounds. Nice. And I mean, for up here, that's, yeah, that's a for, North, fish. for Northern States. That's, that's a huge fish, not for Florida or Texas, but for, right. for, for Northern States, that's a, that's a big, large mouth. Definitely. Um, so, uh, twins talk, uh, we had a very sad development for twins fans. We traded away Nelson Cruz. Um, we will miss him, but, uh, he, he's, a class act and one of the best hitters in baseball. So, yep. uh, you know, I was very, he sad deserves to go, to be honest with you. He deserves to, I, I feel about Nelson Cruz and even Miguel Sano a little bit that they deserve to be on a winning team. Well, I, I, I agree with you. Um, Sano, I'm a little concerned about just health wise, a little bit of health and, and a slump and, but you know, Nelson Cruz, you know, hats off to him and we wish him the best wherever he goes. And, um, you know, he's, like I said, he's a class act and he will be missed, but, uh, I'm, I'm sure he's going to continue to be successful wherever he goes. Agreed. So, uh, so let's tonight guys, we have our second installment, uh, of the cigar industry hive mind. So let's get right into it with our special guests of the evening. And as always, guys, you know, special guests on How About That Cigar Live 
are brought to you by Corona Cigar Company and CoronaCigar.com, the Internet's largest and easiest to use virtual cigar store. Corona Cigar Company offers you the finest handmade cigars, humidors, and cigar accessories at the absolute lowest possible price. You'll also find unique and limited cigars containing Florida sun-grown tobacco. As a proud American, president and founder of Corona Cigar Company, Jeff Borshowitz believed it was possible to bring cigar tobacco farming back to Florida. At Corona Cigar Company and CoronaCigar.com, you'll find the best selection anywhere in the world of cigars containing this special Florida sun-grown tobacco. If you live in Florida or are just visiting, be sure to visit any of the great Corona Cigar locations in downtown Orlando, Sand Lake, Lake Mary, and also the Davidoff of Geneva Lounge in Tampa. For more info on all of that, please visit coronacigar.com and floridasungrown.com. So, first on the docket this evening, if you would, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the studio from Developing Palettes, the cigar surgeon himself, John McTavish. Welcome to the show. Thanks, gentlemen. First on, first in your hearts. It feels like it's been a year since I've been on the show, man. It's been a while. It's not a year. You were on with Garrett doing the the gifts, uh, the gift That's- of December. That is true. That is true. I tried to get a zinger in there, but you know what? You guys had me on in December, and I appreciate that very much. And it's nice to be on the show, gentlemen. Thank you very much. And we're talking about stuff that isn't trade show related. So that's right. I I like that. It's fun. And for those of you who watched the Hive Mind show last year, that will be the last time we hear John speak. So, John, thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. <laughs> Everyone, uh, stay safe. Uh, uh, you know, support your local shelter. <laughs> All right. Stay next up. Next up from Smoke In, we have Honest Abe DeBabna. Welcome to the show, brother. How are you? What's up, gentlemen? Thanks for coming Living on, brother. Living the dream, life. Thank you so much for being on again with us. Thanks for having me. So next up from Half Wheel and HalfWheel.com, we have Charlie Minato. Charlie, welcome back to the show. Charlie is muted. There, I just un- I tried to unmute you. while charlie is Um, unmuting himself there we go go. sorry i was just trying to give john more time to talk (laughs) i i missed i missed my shot i had my shot i missed my shot now it's too late that's it i was like 17 percent of your available talk time that that was that was very accurate never tell me the odds (laughs) and (laughs) never tell me the odds and finally on uh on the show this evening we have from Roma Craft to back, Skip Martin. Welcome back to the show. How you doing, guys? Loving life, I'm good, man. Thank you so much for being on. Um, so, so guys, we we talked a little bit about this before we went live, and and we want to make sure that the that the viewers know that we have a lot of stuff to talk about tonight, uh, and this is not a PCA trade show recap. We've we've done that already, and. A lot of uh, cigar shows have done that already, and I think it's uh, it's all been discussed thoroughly and discussed well. Uh, that's not really what we're going to talk about tonight, so uh, I hope that's all right with everybody. Um, so let's quickly go around the horn and uh, have everybody say what you're smoking and drinking. So we'll start with uh, Garrett. Oh, I'm starting off well. I'm going to be finishing here rather shortly, but I have got the Casa Cuevas, Connecticut, and the Buble. Very nice, very nice. Uh, let's go to uh, Skip Martin. What do you uh, What do you have on the fire this evening? 
I'm smoking a Craft 21 Segundo, and I have a Aquitaine Grand Perfecto Segundo next. So nice. We're gonna take your word for it because it's really dark where where you are, and we can't see you. But we're gonna take <laughs> your word for it. <laughs> well, I'm on low res because I'm on Nicaragua Wi-Fi. So that's that's good. That's uh, so, Charlie. What uh, what are you smoking and drinking this evening? I am smoking a Baca. There we go. Uh, Perfecto. Skip mm. can tell you what size it's actually called. Uh, there we go. And uh, I have a gin and tonic. Always good. Always good. Uh, John, what do you have uh, fired up? One of the rare moments I get to smoke Romacraft, because I have some Romacraft apparently in my tickle trunk. So this is the Cro-Magnon. I'm going to have to defer to Skip. I have no idea what size that would be. But uh, it's tasty. And uh, on on deck, uh, American Burial, that's not working at all. That's awesome. Yeah, that's... <laughs> woo! See-through cans? See-through can, baby. It's American Technology brought to you by whoever, but it's uh, Alesmith Brewing's company, and it's a uh, IPA, West Coast uh, IPA, and I, uh, I love this. I just had this last week and went on and got some more because they're so tasty. Very nice. Uh, and Abe, what do you have fired up this evening? Um... I got a cigar that was actually dropped off by a great patron of ours, old patron. He dropped off a 20-year-old uh, VSG Bellicoso. So oh. literally 20 years old. Yellow, I just threw out the cell. It was yellow as heck. But um, enjoying this with uh, some Topo in my uh, smoking tumbler, keeping it cold. Wait, wait, wait. What is Topo? Topo Chico, bro. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Are you for real right now? Yep. This is why we don't let John talk. No idea what Topo is, man. You don't. I mean, I think feel like Skip should explain this because he's from Hipsterville. Topo Chico. Yeah. It's like a super carbonated Mexican mineral water without the diarrhea and side effects. <laughs> Interesting. I've never it's... heard of it until Eric Gutterson and, and like now everybody I know drinks it. It's crazy. And is, is it well, flavored like, or is it just neutral? They come flavored. Uh, but I drink the neutral. Right. They have a lime and a grapefruit. But they're they're and, pretty yeah. mild. Yeah, the the lime's strong. The grapefruit's pretty mild. But yeah. it got uh, Coca Cola purchased it like two years ago, so yeah, distribution has expanded a bit dramatically. Well, and hopefully it'll make it up to Minnesota because Garrett can correct me, but I have never seen it in a shop in Minnesota. Um, it's, so it's it's, it's really wine. good. Oh yeah, okay. So you're busting my balls, and you guys don't even have it in the shop in Minnesota. Oh, I see how it is. I hey, see how it is. is. It's basically Southern Canada. It's yeah, it really <laughs> is. I'm gonna annex you any day now. Uh, uh, and I'm, I'm, total uh, wine. Total wine. Okay. Yeah, I I don't like to go to Total Wine, but uh, I'll make the sacrifice to get some Topo Chico. Uh, I'm smoking a La Polina Goldie uh, Robusto Extra, and drinking some Florida Cana 12 and water. So that is what's going on with that. So let's dive into the this PCA. And yeah, let's dive into the PCA trade show. Not. <laughs> um, so the first question, um, as far as I can tell, we're in the midst of uh, what a lot of people have classified as another cigar boom. And and I don't, we don't. I mean, we can get into the, you know, the nitty gritty of if that's true or not. But let's let's assume for the sake of this question that we're in the mi middle of a cigar boom right now. What is the what's the because a lot of the the companies have talked about sales increases 
and because consumers are smoking more and they're buying more cigars right now because of lockdowns and people working from home having more time to smoke and things like that and we've heard from a lot of companies that their sales have increased and it so let's let's assume for the sake of this question all those things are true what's the over under on how long the uptick is going to last before numbers go back down to pre-COVID levels. And let's set the line at two years, over or under. Let's start with John McTavish. Uh, I'm going to go over uh, because I'm Canadian and so I'm supposed to be optimistic. You know, I think, I think um, correct me if I'm wrong, Abe, Abe is obviously going to speak at great lengths to this because he's the panel expert and Skip as well. Um, but I'm assuming with the uptake in consumption, you've probably also brought some new sm cigar smokers into the fold. So even if everything remained consistent and people dropped their, their smoking habits down to a smaller level, I would expect overall consumption to go up because there's new cigar smokers that have come into the fold. Now, hopefully everyone's not being a dickhead to them and they're being welcoming and, you know, we can keep those cigar smokers and, you know, because... It, 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 you know, at this point, a new cigar smoker seems like such a bizarre thing. Like running into somebody who's smoking their first cigar for the first time seems like a bizarre thing. But provided that everyone can keep them in the fold and welcome them, yeah, I think um, I don't, I don't, unless some, unless something radically changes in the marketplace, which uh, Charlie will report on for sure. Um, I don't, I don't think anything's going to change in the next two years. I think it's just going to keep going up. And I didn't even I didn't even mention Habano Sase's uh, abilities to not deliver product, <laughs> which is the wild card. Yeah, uh, Abe, what do you think? Um, I don't think it's ever going to go down to pre-COVID numbers. Okay. Uh, I think eventually you'll see a decline and a leveling off somewhere above where it was. But without a doubt, I, I, I know for a fact I deal with consumers, and and, and we've seen how many first time customers we have and we interact heavily with our with our consumer base there's been a lot of new people who adopted the culture and lifestyle in the last 18 months um no doubt about it and um you know whether it, i don't see really it going down like past what it was before covid i, I think eventually people will slow up a little bit um as, as things normalize and whatnot but it'll level off somewhere above where it was Okay. Uh, Charlie, what about you? Um, I'm going to take the under on it lasting two years. Um, I, I think that the, the real issue is that similar to what happened in 19, because 19 was different than the years that preceded it. You know, I don't think that consumption likely went down. We don't have any real like numbers that could track this. Uh, because we're basing it off of imports or Abe could base it off of and Skip could base it off of what they're individually selling through. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those consumers are smoking those cigars. And I think what we saw in 19 in particular was that the humidors just got overstocked and overstocked and overstocked all throughout the years that preceded it. And then in 19, they just kept assuming that it was going to increase and it, it didn't. It, the market couldn't sustain that. Um, it's also unclear to me how Abe, and to a certain extent, I guess Skip, but Abe in particular could speak more to this point, which is that, um, you know, a lot of the sales that I imagine that were taking place in, in 20, particularly in the sort of time between April and let's call it September, a lot of that was inventory that was, you know, 
sort of dead stock more or less um, on the manufacturing end. Skip runs a, a different business than a lot of these other manufacturers do. But, um, you know, we certainly heard about manufacturers getting offers from, you know, the really, really big retailers, which is sort of a, you know, here's a million dollar check. Um, I need a big discount, but, you know, I'll take what you got. And with COVID sort of unfolding, they, they a lot of them took that offer up and, and moved a lot of inventory they probably were going to have to sit on if COVID hadn't have happened. Um, and so, you know, I, I just don't know how sustainable this is because I, I can't imagine that consumers have really increased their smoking as much as their buying has suggested it is. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's going to be a cliff that we kind of fall off of, very similar to how, you know, 19 went, where the first couple months seemed okay, and then all of a sudden it was just hell. Yeah. So, Charlie, I just want to ask, you think the numbers will fall back down to pre-COVID numbers? Because, I, mean, uh, I don't think it's going to last two years. I don't think the growth or this boom is going to last two years. But I don't think we're ever going to drop down to pre-COVID numbers. I don't think it'll drop down to maybe as bad as the latter half of 19 was, but I think it'll revert back to where we were in 17 and 18, um, which would still be a, a drop from where we've been in the last 12 months. Okay. Uh, Skip, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, for the most part, I, I agree with both what Abe said and with what Charlie said. <clears throat> I was going to mention the wholesale inventories problem that existed in 2019. Um, Look, I mean, increasing the number of cigar smokers is the job of retailers. And uh, there's some retailers that are doing a really, really good job of doing that. But for the most part, across the landscape, the, the Achilles heel of our industry in general are poor performing retailers. Out of the 3,000 uh, you know, walk-in humidors or whatever the number is, there may be 250 really good, engaged, experienced you know, uh, retailers that are that are doing the job that they need to do in terms of building new cigar smokers. Uh, the the only the other thing I would mention that neither no one's mentioned, uh, which I see every single day, is there's this there's a dynamic that's happening on the production side, where, like Charlie said, a lot of the brands are dumping kind of you know stale inventory to big retailers and they're getting discounted at huge rates. So there's a, there's going to be a shift in terms of price sensitivity, I think, or price elasticity for consumers because there's a lot of cigars that are available and the prices of the really good cigars keep seem, seem to keep going up and up and up. Um, on the production side, there's also quality issues. Um, because of what Charlie said, um, at you know in, in in 19 there were factories laying off hundreds of people in Esteli and still to 2020 yeah in, in the beginning of 2020 even and the, the majority of the people on our side thought 2020 was going to be a disaster that the that the demand was going to fall off the cliff that we were going to hit the the uh, FDA problem in late 19 and um and and we were we were going to have all these problems well what happened was a lot of those people decided they were going to go to the border. Um, every factory, I mean, there were like 45 people from one factory in one week that quit to go as a group to the border. So, um, and in Esteli. So, um, getting experienced rollers in Esteli is a challenge. Every single factory has a sign that says we're hiring, you know, uh, they're, 
they're going back to where they were five, 10 years ago, bringing people off the street, training them how to roll bundle cigars. Um, there's a lot, I mean, even if you look at the half wheel reviews in the last three months, there's a lot more 83s and 84s than there ever has been. Right. And I think you're going to start seeing more and more of that. Um, good tobacco. There's a lot of tobacco, but there's not a lot of really good tobacco. And there's a lot of cigars being made with tobacco that's not ready. You know, we have a million dollars in, in open sales orders. Uh, every shipment we get in has $250,000, $200,000 worth of product. And, and 85, 90%, if not 100% of it's already going out to a customer who ordered it two months ago. Um, we produce as much as we can, but that, that's just always been the thing for us. We have a different model, like Charlie said. But if you're a factor that's sitting on, uh, a, a, you know, say, 10 times that number, $10 million worth of open sales orders, uh, and it's a decision whether just to get it out of the aging room after three weeks versus six weeks, or if it's a matter of not producing it because you don't have the Lajero you need and instead you use the Viso or you, you know, you're putting newer rollers on it where you never would have done that before because on the other end of the thing, you, you know, uh, famous or somebody is about to, you know, just dump a million dollars on you. Um, I think you're going to start seeing that in the market. And, and so, you know, prices going up, quality going down. Uh, I, I take the under. I mean, the other thing I would add to that, that makes this, question a little bit tougher for me to accept that it's going to last as long as two years is that the market uh is healthy but the the manufacturing efficiency is still not there so we're we're not really able to gauge like if we were operating at the say midpoint of 2019 with all those conditions you know on the manufacturing and and distribution end meaning that shipping delays weren't what they are today there wasn't the the big backup that there is at, at packaging facilities um, and all of the other things that exist in pretty much every industry right now um, due to, to sort of the effects of COVID. If it was, if the, the collective cigar manufacturing was operating at hundred percent, you could say, okay, the, the manufacturing capacity can either support this or can't support it. Um, and, you know, reasonably speaking, it probably, you know, can expand a little bit, but, but we kind of know where the, the sort of ceiling is in terms of how many cigars, uh, you know, the collective manufacturers can make. We're not there right now. And then you factor in, you know, what happened in COVID where a lot of these factories voluntarily shut down in Honduras, they were forced to shut down for many weeks. And so, you know, they still lost, um, you know, depending on where they were and and how they approached it, everybody lost a little bit of production last year. I don't think that really makes much of a difference, but they're continuing to operate on a deficit. And they're also operating, you know, it's not as if it's, we make cigars, we ship them, and they're you know at the warehouse and uh, you know a very specific amount of time that we're used to. It's still a little bit longer um, in some cases, and you know in the case of if you want to get bands or, or boxes right now, it could be a lot longer um, than the delays are even at this point of the year um, when they're normally delayed. To your point about scarcity, and Skip, I'm sure can talk a little bit more about this, but um, I'd imagine that the impacts from tobacco uh, tobacco operations from early 2020 and probably the back half of 2020 aren't going to be felt until what mid, or uh, pardon me, 20 late 2020 and early 2021 aren't going to be felt until late 2022, 2023. So, you know, you have to think for long-term projects that's going to make a pretty big impact. It, it depends on the component you're talking about, right? So if you're talking about something like a heavy wrapper like Connecticut Broadleaf, it's a three-year cycle. 
between the time it's it's harvested and the time it you know it gets shipped into in a product. But if you're talking about something like Jalapa Viso, it's you know it's it's less than twelve months, right? So um, the you know the the bigger guys who who aren't doing a great job of competing in the marketplace uh, in terms of brand vitality, in terms of consumer interest, relevancy, relevancy, relevancy. right? <laughs> Those guys. There those guys, <laughs> those guys have gotten a lot smarter about cornering the supply chain. So, you know, if you're if you're, um, you know, someone like AJ Fernandez, uh, you're buying, uh, you're buying everything you can possibly buy, not just because you need it, but because someone else can't get it if you bought it, right? Fortunately, you know, for us, you know, we've always had this this process where. Anytime anything we use is available, we buy it. We always have the, the money to buy it. So if, if, if you're going to sell me filler, a Seco filler that I need five years from now, I'm going to buy it. So, you know, we, we've built up, you know, we have now, you know, somewhere between five and seven years worth of tobacco. Um, my box maker who's, who makes 85% of the stuff he makes is for us. Uh, we bought you know, three years worth of Cedro Macho, uh, you know, two years ago when, when it was available. Um, we don't depend on the Chinese supply chain, uh, cigar rings. We keep a year, two years worth of labels, uh, just so we don't run into those problems. You know, about the only thing we really have shortages on is Boveda because, uh, Boveda is a pain in the ass to, to import into Nicaragua for us. Um, but but other than Boveda, there's nothing in the supply chain for us that's that's at risk. But you know, I'm a supply chain guy. I mean, I, you know, that's been our thing from the beginning. I can tell you that that's not true for the majority of people. Even though our production, counter to what Charlie said, our production was actually about sixty-five thousand cigars more than what we produced in 2019, uh, just because of timing. Um, we we did lose about three weeks, but we made it up and. Uh, you know, for us, uh, you know, our real issue is just factory space um, mm-hmm. more than anything. Uh, Garrett, what are your thoughts about the the over under, you know, uh, with the timeline? <clears throat> well, it's interesting. And as I've been both listening to, you know, our guests and looking at some of the comments, you know, this is a pretty complex issue um, because, you know, one of the early comments from um, Q, who I wish just wouldn't watch our show anymore, um, commented <laughs> um, that a lot of the social media groups and social media in general in cigars has exploded. Uh, Pre-COVID, I remember posting, um, you know, please stop inviting me to all your cigar groups. And... <laughs> Every day I'm invited to more and more and more, and they are just, it's going nuts. Um, so that, that piece is, I think is very real. It's a, it's a, it's a big factor. We've talked to a lot of people who have come into cigars over, you know, over the, the pandemic. And in many ways that is good. Um, on the flip side, what I'm hearing from our panel is that, we either have the issue of um, the the factories start um, either over committing and quality goes down, and which we've seen, 
And if that trend continues, then does the consumer start to accept, you know, what was, you know, an 85 is now a, you know, 75 and that is now acceptable. Does the consumer base continue to drop their expectations as the, the products end up hitting the market? Um, so that'll be interesting to see. For a definitive answer, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna call under. You know, it, it, you know, one thing that a lot of people don't think about just and, and I've mentioned this a couple times before, but um, take flavored cigars and the regulatory issue with flavored cigars. I don't know if it's going to affect your estate or if it if it doesn't affect your estate, but let's say it does, right? Drew Estate consumes a lot of low priming tobacco for acid. So imagine, you know, um, the, 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 the ecosystem of tobacco. It, when a farmer can sell 65, 70, 80% of their crop to Drew Estate type production for, you know, 100% margin over what it costs them to produce it, then all the Lajero and everything else is kind of gravy. Right, all the high priming viso and lajero is gravy. All the sound leaf is gravy, right? If someone like Drew Estate can no longer produce, you know, fifteen twenty million acids a year, then the price of the tobacco that I use overnight doubles. It doubles, and it's already mm -hmm. doubled in the last ten years, right? And so um, you look at that. You look at uh, the the. The value of the Cordoba, for example, I don't know about the Dominican and Honduras, but I know when I came here 10 years ago, the Cordoba was 17, 18 Cordoba per dollar. Now it's uh, 35 Cordoba per dollar. So it's about it's worth about half as much against the dollar as it used to be. But cigar rollers aren't making double what they used to in most factories, right? Um, they are making double in our factory because we index against the dollar. But when when you've got low wages You've got a, the, the, the immigration problems. You've got the political environment you have here. You have the quality, um, you know, the, the, the quality of the tobacco isn't as great, so it's harder to make a good cigar. That would be a long explanation, but I can tell you the better the tobacco, the, the easier it is for the roller to make cigars. So uh, all these things are combining to, like Charlie said, into manufacturing inefficiencies that are either going to result in lower production higher cost or um, quality issues, right? And and all those things are going to be manifested in the market. Um, you're never going to hear a manufacturer tell you, hey, sorry, we're putting out shitty cigars at a higher price, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But uh, just like you're never going to hear them say they had a bad, you know, order cycle at the trade show. But uh, I can tell you, you know, those – I look at the environment to understand what we have to do to prevent the environmental factors from affecting us. And I can tell you, it's always been hard and it's harder. I wouldn't want to be starting out right now. I wouldn't want to be trying to run the factory without someone like Esteban with the decades of buying experience. Um, and, and I wouldn't want to be doing it without having a whole lot of capital because it's really, really tough. Yeah. So Abe, let me, let me kind of follow up on this with a question for you because, um, Jay Davis is watching and he mentioned last week on another podcast that he as uh, as a retailer was was actually he found himself right now kind of buying ahead or over buying 
what he knows projections are for for near term. Are are you kind of taking on that same mentality and do you see other retailers doing the same thing or are you still sticking with the levels that you that you've that your previous projections have have played out? Oh, you're muted. Matt, I'm literally the worst guy you can ask this question to. Um, um, <laughs> Let's ask John. Um, we, uh, the dynamic and what my company's gone through in the past 18 months, um, there's no charts and no graphs or nothing to follow. I mean, we're not ordering ahead. We're ordering whatever we can get. Um, uh, we have back orders with everybody. I mean, it's it's just it, it, we're a bad example of that because we took such a such a growth um, in the last eighteen months. We are completely a dynamically different company than we were eighteen months ago. Um, in fact, we're just hopefully in the next forty five days. My target date is September first to uh, have our new fulfillment center ready, and we place big orders at the show. And you know, I'll, I'll be lucky if we get half of that. You know, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. uh, so for me to order ahead, there is no ordering ahead, even just to order my current needs. I'm where they're, they're so great that we're not getting them as we need them. So okay. that's the problem with us. I mean, would I order ahead? Sure. If I, if I, if I, if I, you know, look for me, I've always run my, my businesses from, from year one inventory heavy. I've always said the money in the bank is worthless. I'd rather have a product. So, okay. you know, if you've ever been in any one of my locations, you can see our humidors are, are, are always stocked, like every cubic volume of air we could find, we could just put something we do. Yeah. Um, but we always ran it heavy, um, and we ordered to fill our warehouse. You know, yeah. I mean, we'll figure out the rest later, but I'll be shocked. I'll be shocked if 50 or 60% of my orders come in the next 60 days. Okay. Do your online trends and retail trends pretty much track the same? Well, I mean, yeah, they did up until last year, you know, up until, you know, about 18 months ago, then the retail just went through the roof. But then again, you know, our, you know, we're a million dollars down in sales in the retail doors um, during COVID. So, uh, but we're, we've been open since October. So, you know, we, I look at the numbers regularly and both our, our retail and our online presence is growing. So our, our business is growing on a local level and on, on a national level as well. So um, are they to scale? Um, you know, percentage wise, yeah, they're pretty close. Okay. Um, John, are you seeing up in Canada, are you seeing and, you know, talking to any retailers that are seeing the same kind of thing as far as they just can't, they can't keep products on the shelf or they're having trouble getting getting orders refilled yeah i mean for for those who have poor memories i was the general manager of a 21 store tobacco chain in canada so i do have a pretty close relationship with a lot of those stores and i can tell you they've been hit by the the sort of one-two punch of covid which uh demand in canada went through the roof just like it did in the states and uh, of course plain packaging which meant um, all the distributors that are basically the middlemen for bringing product in from the manufacturers in the states pulled back on the inventory they're they're keeping because it's um not to bore everyone but they have to basically pay the taxes against that inventory so they were basically paring down their inventory that they have in the warehouses at the time when demand for product is going through the roof so we're at the point in canada where 
uh, 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 retailers are so starved for product that they'll literally buy an entire skid blind because they're just they need the product they're like their humidors are just emptying and they can't get replenished quick enough and um, a lot of manufacturers are dropping off the market which totally makes sense uh, Canada is a market that's probably half the size of New England so why would you bother paying all the extra money and, and pain in the ass to bring product into Canada when you can just do better business in the States it's a lot less work unfortunately um, that leaves all the retailers in Canada kind of dangling in the wind so um, yeah. yeah okay and, and I think the same thing has happened in Europe too because our and the orders and demand we're getting from Schuster, which uh, we can't meet, but uh, it's gone up significantly as well. So I think, you know, you see across Europe and in Asia, you see the same kind of demand increase. Okay. Well, the other problem with all the international markets, John alluded to it, is that Hamanos is uh, having more issues than I think any other company fulfilling orders, um, which is probably not anything new, but uh, it has reached a completely shit show level of you know like it used to just be you know cohiba and some of the more popular stuff would go through you know periods of time where it wasn't available but i mean it it, it seems like if this trend continues six months from now trying to get anything other than you know cigars that are robusto size or smaller whether that being thinner or whether it being shorter um is, is gonna be just tragically impossible and actually so, from, sorry go ahead I was just going to say, I mean, you're bang on the money, except that apparently we're already at that point. I'm hearing from international distributors that like SKUs like Monte Cristo 4, which has never been limited in the history of Hamanos SA, they literally can't get Monte Cristo number fours. So if you can't get a regularly produced, commonly available cigar, what does that say for your long-term prospects over the next 10 to 12 months? Yeah, and that's only going to in increase the amount of orders that people like Schuster and the other non-Cube international distributors are going to want to place because they're going to see an opportunity to strike and as john also alluded to skip would rather you know uh, it's a little bit easier to sell those cigars in the u.s than it is to and, and usually more profitable to sell them in the u.s for most companies i don't know exactly how skip deals with it but um than it is to ship them elsewhere and deal with all the rest of that nonsense and what about is china a factor i know that they're uh, growing exponentially in cigar sales and they're even got online retailers. Any of you guys see China as um, a, a new um, kind of factor in global cigar market? Yeah, I mean, we I can give you a statistic that that was somewhat surprising for us. Uh, China in the past 12 months um, is uh, now our fifth largest source of readership. Um, wow. it, the same period for the previous year, so from mid-19 to mid-20, it was, I don't think it was number 10, but it was either eight or nine. Um, and now it's firmly in the fifth spot and it's uh, outperforming, I forget which country was in that fifth spot for the previous year, but it's basically quadrupled what uh, that percentage of readership was. Um, and then in terms of like actual numbers of readers, uh, it, I think it was like eight and a half or nine times the amount that the that we had in readership for whatever the fifth largest country was prior. So, um, yeah. And then obviously, you know, it's major investment in uh, half of Habanos and and uh, Altadas and Tobacco Larry mm -hmm. Garcia and JR. Um, it, it certainly in the last 18 months has become a massive 
player compared to where it was for the, the 18 months prior? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say just from anecdotal information on demand that there's a lot more opening up for New World cigars in China than there has been historically. Um, and then in Europe, you know, the TPD, too, having settled in and becoming very, you know, repeatable, sustainable, predictable, has has added a lot in terms of people's confidence in, in you know, um, building up inventories or, or you know, uh, doing demand generation. So, uh, you know, you're, you know, for us, Europe was always a FDA hedge. Um, you know, we, we, we don't have, I mean, we could sell three times as many cigars just in the States if we could produce them. Um, the reason why we opened up Europe was in case, you know, the FDA shut us down. Um, so, you know, it, it is, it is difficult trying to, to maintain the, the demand, um, in terms of the, the request, but um, how other companies decide to, to deal with that is going to be a, a big question in terms of in terms of availability of good product in the states. Um, the the advice you know I was a retailer at one time. the The advice that I always gave people is try to buy opportunistically and make sure all your inventory is always paid for. So if somebody's offering a 20% deal or a buy two, you know, or buy, buy eight, get two free or whatever, uh, because, you know, like, uh, like they do uh, occasionally just for cash flow reasons, then take advantage of that. I would say that that dynamic has changed a little bit because what you're going to start seeing is you're going to start seeing, you know, some big humongous quality issue coming through and then, and then they're going to offer that kind of opportunistic, not because of cash flow, but because of demand issues. And, and, and you, as a retailer, if you've got a cust- if you've got customers who are buying La Flor Dominicana on a regular basis, then always keep that on back order, always over order. You're never going to hurt yourself because they're always going to keep the quality. They're always going to uh, have demand and, and you're going to be in good shape. But if, you know, some brand that is kind of, uh, you know, on the, the teetering of quality or, uh, you know, whatever you make that judgment, if you load up on a hundred boxes on an order of something and all of a sudden they send them to you and they're garbage cigars and you and you can't sell them then you're going to be in a a pretty bad spot so um you know it's also a good time to be careful so have you got on the quality piece yeah um have you guys seen have you guys already seen a notice noticeable uptick in quality control problems or do you think we're still a few months or more away from seeing that on a regular basis boy i'd love to jump in on that one do it i mean depending on who you ask i'm either a fanboy or a hater or both um but i would say over the last 18 months we've seen a a marked jump in the, the amount of construction issues with cigars where prior um you know i could have gone six eight ten reviews with a construction issue and now I would say it's uh, quite commonplace. And, um, you know, as Skip was kind of alluding to with, with some of the half-wheel scores, obviously we're seeing the same thing where, um, and I kind of, I think I made a crack to Charlie some time ago that um, we might be actually hard-pressed to make a top 25 list this year. And that's not really me being cynical. That's me saying, you know, if we actually had standards and guidelines in place for what should be a top 25 cigar, that might actually be a stretch based on the sort of, subjective quality of what we're putting out for scores for cigars this year based on comparison to last year or even the year before where you know if you took the best crop of top 25 this year 
they might not even break in. The best cigar of this year would struggle to break into the top 25 of 2018. So to me, that's um, pretty pretty dramatic. Well, and also, John, a lot of those a lot of those cigars that are going to make the list may not even be around in a year or two years. I mean, that's oh, not yeah. un- that's not uncommon um, that you take a you know one of Coop's lists from three years ago and you know twenty percent don't even exist anymore. But you know, fact even big fat. I mean, you know, when we make a new brand, we we build up the inventories, we build up the 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 finished goods, we we try to create. Uh, it's a, a sustainable brand. We've never had to discontinue a skew or or cut back on a brand, right? Because of availability of tobacco or because of uh, demand. But you know, there's a lot of brands that come out with the intention of being a core brand that turn into kind of like, well, this year we made it, next year maybe not. You know, um, and and I think you're going to see a lot of things that get launched that either because they never you know, click into to a demand cycle for, with consumers or because the, the wrapper they use to make it just isn't available anymore. Um, you're just going to start seeing more brands to replace old brands uh, more, more than, more than you have in the past. Um, Abe, what about you? Have you, have you noticed any quality drops uh, on average lately or, or do you think we may still be a ways out from it? I mean, look, here's the thing. Me personally, the sticks I've smoked, no. And unless a consumer tells us, it could be out there, but I wouldn't know. And if they have sometimes a, a stick or a problem, they don't always contact us. So on my level, I can tell you, we haven't received an influx of complaints or anything outside the ordinary as far as construction with product being delivered. Okay. Or, or bought in our store, for that, for that matter. Yeah. I mean, they'll more readily say something in the store, maybe than online, just because of the hassle of, you know, contacting us or mailing us back a box or something. But, um, but our, our 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 staff writes it up. There's paperwork that goes in every week, and I, I haven't seen a, a a spike out of the ordinary for for damages. Okay, Charlie, what about you? Yeah, I mean, we certainly have experienced more perplexing construction issues than is normal. Um, so not the like, oh, the cigar was bunch tight or something along those lines, but stuff that's like just sort of off the wall. You know, you were clearly rushing production and, you know, with, with bad tobacco and we are seeing it, which is really concerning because the cigars that we review at Half Wheel are new cigars. And so if you're going to launch a new brand, you know, that's the the first couple months that it's out are going to be you know maybe the first week of production isn't the best of it but the first couple months are going to be the one where the manufacturer is paying the most attention um you know it's when the tobacco is presumably the closest to what was in the blending room and what the intent of the blend was supposed to be um and so you know i'm of the belief that typically not all the time that the you know the best version of the cigar you're going to find is probably the one that they created initially and not the one three years down the road um because it it just makes more sense that you would say you know we're going to put our best foot forward on the initial launch not that we're going to try to let it decline but it, it just sort of naturally happens particularly given the cycle of new products so if we're seeing the issues i can only imagine what would be happening if we were you know, reviewing cigars that had been around for multiple years and just buying them off the shelf today. Um, 
uh, on the flip side, uh, a lot of the cigars that are on shelves today, um, you know, maybe not at this point, but certainly six months ago, a lot of those cigars had plenty of age on them. And, and I certainly subscribe to the theory that bad tobacco is going to be aged bad tobacco. And certainly age <laughs> is not going to fix bunching errors or those sorts of things. But, you know, some of the minor issues, I imagine probably, you know, a lot of these sort of mediocre cigars had a chance to be average or slightly above average um, that they may not be afforded in a world where, you know, we're not cleaning up the inventory debacle of 2019. Sure. Sorry, I just wanted to ask a question, Charlie. I mean, and I'm not don't I'm not asking a yeah. name specific, but uh, is what you're finding? Do you find it scattered across different companies, or do you find it pre- uh, more prevalent in certain companies from certain companies? No, I mean we've we've seen it in multiple countries of origin. Um, it's not to say that it's like one out of every five reviews is just having massive construction issues, but. Um, there have been a lot more head scratching, like I don't know what what happened to the cigar moments than I can ever recall. Um, and I know I've also smoked some regular production stuff that's been around for a little while, and and you know where we've purchased it or someone's handed it to me or whatever, and been like, uh, yikes, uh, that's that's not a good cigar. Um, and it's it's obvious to me that you know you've got tobacco issues or bunching issues that are abnormal. Yeah, and I mean, to to sort of piggyback on that, uh, certainly developing palates, I, I can tell you, um, it's it's clear when you examine the cigar, like this cigar is underfilled, and you know we've transitioned a lot to the the majority of the cigars that we're smoking and reviewing are purchased at retail. So this is not a manufacturer sample. This is something that was available on the retail shelf, and if you know I smoke two samples and both of them are underfilled. Um, that's, that's definitely concerning on a new launch, new cigar. And of course we do the same thing as half wheel. It's, you know, our, our scope is really new reviews. And I think it does go back to something that Jay Davis mentioned in the comments, which is, um, you know, a lot of brand owners and a lot of manufacturers weren't down at the factory and haven't been able to be down at the factory. So, you know, some of these products that are launched are as a result of someone not being there to ensure that the, the final quality product is up to, up to par. I mean, you Skip can talk lengths about that you can't blend a cigar by having uh, s- samples sent to you through the mail. It just it doesn't work like that. So if you're not at the factory, it's it's going to be really tough to uh, maintain quality control. Well, maybe the other problem is I don't know how, like, I, I think across the board, maybe not every manufacturer, but the majority of them, like, you're listening to retailers like Abe tell you, we need product, why are you backordered, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I've... I don't know if there's necessarily been an edict of like, hey, don't quality control this stuff at the level you were doing, but I have to imagine there's an, a sense of rushed, you know, we need to get this stuff out the door and somebody's boss's boss is, you know, calling down the factory saying we need this stuff yesterday and, you know, the cigars are rolled. Uh, let's not try to find reasons to not ship them is probably happening at a lot more factories than we'd like to admit. And the other problem is it's not just in Nicaragua. I, I heard from a number of manufacturers in the Dominican that they were opening up rolling schools for the first time in, in, in some cases, decades because um, they were having issues with not having enough labor. Um, and, you know, they're they're having to take people off the street and needing to get them into a position where they can be rolling production stuff in a lot quicker manner than it was two years ago. Um, and so I'm guessing that the average cigar being rolled today and bunched today is being rolled by people with less experience than it was two years ago. Um, not just in Nicaragua where there's, you know, a, a 
whole bunch of unique factors, um, but also in a country like Dominican Republic, which I think most of us would probably agree is sort of the most stable manufacturing base uh, that we have as a, a single country. Do you think if the if if the slippery slope of saying of of one factory or or a few factories saying okay we're gonna let you know we're gonna let a couple things slide that maybe in the past we wouldn't have let slide if if that slippery slope trend continues do you think that's gonna have what kind of detrimental effects will that have on near future and long-term future for the brands or for fans of the brand that kind of thing and the retailers who buy the brands 1990s baby yeah i mean so i think uh i mean some of the things we're talking about are things that you won't really notice unless you're just critically analyzing a cigar right um you know, I, th- I think there's this, also this dynamic where there's a lot of new smokers. And so when, you, when you're deep into the red edits and, and to the, you know, the, the newbie uh, pages, what you see is you see people like, oh, I had a bunch of tar buildup in my punch on my 60 ring gauge cigar. It's like, well, yeah, of course, you know, you shouldn't be punching 60 ring gauge cigars, right? Like, uh, or, or people who aren't humidifying their cigars pr- properly, they're over humidifying, which to me is a lot worse than under humidifying, right? So what, what you're running in, what you're running into is, is you're going to see just some of the, the dynamic of retailers not doing their job and new smokers who don't understand, you know, how to properly, you know, smoke a cigar. And you're going to see that kind of quality feedback. And then you're going to see from the people who, who smoke the same brand every single day who go, wait a second, something changed. Right. Um, in general, though. You know, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it's going to be the 1990s where somebody's going to get away with just putting out a dog shit brand, and 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 you know, uh, it, like like they did back then, right? I mean, the the market is too uh, brutal. Uh, th- that 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 will come out and that will go away, and you will see them disappear fa- as fast as they came. There's been some recent brands that just, hey, I'm launching my thing, boom, they're gone, right? So um, because the market just won't just won't put up with that um you know i'm curious your abe thoughts i would add that i think that the cream will rise i think that those people that are deep into it will find the brands that are doing things right and and will become more attracted to it i think the area where because most cigar smokers are, are like most beer drinkers they're not the guys that are lined up to go get the limited edition whatever barrel aged stout creamsicle etc most of them are people that that drink bud light and have switched to seltzer or whatever um, I think that the area where it, it would be most problematic is with those bundle cigar smokers because those are guys that smoke a very specific cigar every day of the week. They they have their size, their blend, et cetera, and that's the, the people that are going to be able to tell you specifically, you know, something changed and, and something went wrong, and I can tell you – I can't tell you maybe what it is, but I can tell you exactly which bundle I bought that, that where, you know, this bundle cigar I've been smoking for seven years – doesn't taste the same or isn't smoking right or whatever yeah well and garrett and i have noticed that even talking to each other recently and and it's it's honestly more than just review cigars it's just our everyday social smoking is um and john mentioned it already is we've we've noticed uh an uptick in underfilled 
cigars, cigars that you can tell as soon as you take it out of the box or take it out of your humidor that it just feels light. And then, and then as soon as you fire it up, you know, you get, you get a quarter inch into the cigar and it's just starts tunneling like crazy because there's not, it's, it, it's, it's underfilled. And, um, those, those trends are hopefully, um, you know, not going to be a, a huge impact, but I agree with Charlie when it comes to the, those smokers who are the, the, the every week they're in the brick and mortar shop buying the same bundle or they're online buying the same bundle. And they're going to be the ones who are going to start searching for, in some cases, a new brand, in some cases, a new retailer. Um, but it's going to gradually and then more and more change people's buying habits if they're unhappy with the product. One thing I'll just add, Matt, I just had a retailer who's watching the show in Canada message me and he said uh, the comments about the Canadian side of things is, is spot on and uh, Canadian retailers are taking note of the quality control issues of cigars coming in that are uh, clearly have been sitting in a warehouse for too long, so they're actually significantly underfilled or have physical damage. Um, but again, because they're so desperate for inventory, they, you know, they're just kind of taking whatever they can get and then writing down what they can't sell. Um, but, you know, certainly here, that's, that's being noticed at the retail level, from what I'm being told. Yeah. So here's a question about um, kind of transitioning into social media and everything that has taken place, you know, over the last 18 months or so. Um, you know, the big trend with virtual events, virtual herfs, online, things like that. Is it? Do you guys think it's still necessary or beneficial for companies to continue this trend of virtual events now that things are opening up again, or or are they not needed anymore because in-store events are kind of back on the on the schedule? Abe, go. Uh, we're never going to stop doing virtual events. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, there'll always be a, a calling for in-store events, and we'll probably do them, um, but the reach and what we could do to an audience that's not all here where where our stores our retail doors are, are located is just too massive to be ignored it takes a little more work um, especially when you're trying to integrate something like in a real event format into a website that you kind of have to program we program and kind of make work for every one of our virtual events um, I think the great smoke earlier this year kind of showed that there is a need, and of course, you know, that was still during COVID, but we received hundreds, hundreds of emails of people who were so grateful because they said, look, we can't take off of work and, and leave for four or five days, and we can't afford to, even if we could take off of work. So, to you know, we see all these events, these multi-vendor mega events going on all the time, and it's something we've never been able to get to. So to have participated in this virtual event was great. We hope you never stop doing it which is kind of one of the reasons why in 2022 we're attempting to do both. We're going to return to the physical event on premise and incorporate, you know, Michael Herklotz is going to be kind enough to come down and co-host again. And we're going to incorporate a studio on site and kind of do this whole correspondence of on the event floor and virtual at the same time. But yeah, I don't see us stopping virtual events ever. 
But I don't, at the, at the same time, Abe, I mean, Smoke In, you know, as Skip already kind of mentioned, like you guys are essentially the top, what is it, one and a half percent of retailers. So I, I don't think your experience represents the experience of a lot of the retailers out there who, um, at least I got the impression, were forced into online sales only because they had no other choice. They wouldn't have gone that route. You know, you talk about uh, like order order to uh, to the curb or whatever. They wouldn't have done that unless they're forced into it. So I kind of wonder how many of those retailers who really had no other choice, whether they're going to keep that up, having having seen what it could do to their business, or whether they're going to kind of go back to the previous model of, well, you know, I can just I can just sit at my counter and and play solitaire all day. Why would I Why would I bother taking well, web orders? I'll, I'll tell you why. <laughs> Because, you know, everybody think. first off, I'm not sure about that number of what percentage we have. Um, <laughs> I think it's pretty accurate. Um, but, I mean, you know, people think I was just born today, you know. I mean, I started with one 900-square-foot store, so I know the evolution process. The retailer that was savvy enough to pivot and and find a way to continue to make sales during COVID, and if he's tapped into that, I don't think it's going to be the type of retailer that says, okay, now I can go back to normal, and I don't see I don't see that happening. A lot of retailers didn't do anything other than to still cater locally and do curbside service and stuff like that, which is fine too. But, um, you know, we, we, we had an online presence long before it. We had never really done virtual events. You know, that was something that we were thrown into and kind of had to do because there, there was no stores. Yeah. So, um, but doing that showed us a light and an avenue of of how to reach people and, and people look we, we forget you know skip said it earlier you know i mean what are they like you know i mean I, I we jump around the number but there's a relatively small number of quality shops and if you want to get to how many of those quality shops are throwing any kind of decent in-store event that number becomes even smaller and yet there's people all over the country smoking so there's a lot of people who just don't get that kind of an experience of being part of an event. So to be able to do it virtually is just makes sense. And, you know, whether, whether a retailer just got into online sales and didn't really figure out how to do virtual events yet, I, I really don't know if he's taking the time and the effort to pivot into online sales, why would you not do it? Um, and if you figured out how to kind of do a successful virtual event, why would you stop doing it? So I, I, I don't see why they would. I mean, I, I certainly hope that they continue. I guess it's just the retail cynic in me coming from that industry previously that I feel like, you know, th the businesses that already are doing things in a successful way and do successful things will continue to do successful things. And companies that don't do successful things can't be forced into that. You know, you know I hope that they have that aha moment, but, uh, but I don't know that they necessarily will. And I guess that's where the retail cynic in me goes. You know, you're already successful, so of course you're going to do it. You're going to continue doing things that work well for your business. Not every retailer is necessarily going to reach for that because maybe that's just not what they're in it for. A lot of retailers aren't, and I, but I think the ones that were savvy enough to kind of do that pivot are. I mean, that, that's the point I was trying to make. I mean, the only deterrent really, honestly, if you want to continue it, is it may take a lot more resources, time, and effort than they're willing to do to sustain it and keep it going. You know, it's one thing when you're forced to have to do it and then to keep it going where you need someone constantly taking product shocks, updating the site, doing this, doing that. It's a lot of work time-wise, labor-wise, financial-wise. So for that reason, maybe some of the retailers will opt to say, hey, look, my retail 
business is back to where it was. It's too costly and labor intensive. I don't have the resources to maintain doing this online presence. And that may happen. Charlie, you know, what do you think? If I, if I had a, if I had a crystal ball, the one thing that I would add to that is, is that you're going to start seeing, I would guess, um, assuming you can hear me. Okay. And Charlie's not making fun of me. <laughs> no, you're, um, you're all good. Go ahead. I think you're going to start seeing manufacturers have a lot less people out on the road. Uh, I've heard, I've, I've heard anecdotally, you know, manufacturers that still have reps uh, drastically reducing their budgets for hotels and for traveling outside of their, their normal, you know, home region uh, and doing more work from, from home uh, with, with sales and with the retailers. And then also uh, either companies actually reducing the number of people and not rehiring them or planning to reduce the number of people either through attrition or, or actively uh, reducing, uh, you know, headcount. So, you, you know, the, the, the time period of having, you know, Joe, the, the, the road sales rep who has to, to, to come in, set up a, a card table and just stand there, you know, in that kind of event, I think that kind of event is going to go away, uh, A, because they don't have the product that they need to move, uh, and B, uh, because they don't have the same resources out on the road. So I think you'll start, you'll start seeing less of those kinds of like, you know, half-ass in-store events. And, you, and, you'll, and the people who do a great job, like Abe, um, they, they've invented a new way uh, of doing things. And so... Um, you know, they're going to keep doing it. I think the problem, Skip, is like we've been saying, you know, there's really a small number of, of, of retailers who are really working their business. Those reps are really needed for the majority of the other retailers. Right. Are they? Yeah. There's retailers that have like a there's retailers that have like a 40 or $50,000 revenue number in a month. And 10,000 of that comes when the Christoph rep comes in this week and sets up a card table. And they, and they have a, they can't pay the rent. It's a hell of a Christoph have, event. <laughs> or whatever, you know. It, I, you know I, I'm giving a lot of credit to Justin. I know, I know you know, he, he's, uh, he likes to travel. So, um, but yeah. If you're doing 20% of your, your revenue in a single event, I don't care what brand it is. That's a hell of a event or a really <laughs> right. terrible shop. The, the well, point so, you're making is I, yeah. know, I know some stores like yeah. There are some stores that require that rep to come in and do but it. But I, I, I think to Skip's point, like I, I think that that stuff is going away. Like I, I, this is a different conversation than the you know the virtual events. But like I, I think that more manufacturers are going to look at what Miami Cigar Company did and say, you know, like we don't want to fire people, but the P and L says we probably should. Um, and you know, I, I think that some of them are going to be hell bent because whether it's a retailer or a manufacturer or whatever, people are hell-bent in this business on just repeating what they did last year. But I think a lot of them are going to say, you know what, like, if you're a C-level account, like, we can't afford to keep a rep in a territory for, so that we can have a whole bunch of Cs. Like, and, and I think you're going to see more of an adjustment there, and that's going to mean that some of those retailers are either going to have to adapt and get used to ordering over the phone and ordering when they run out of product or ordering before they run out of product, or... Uh, they're they're gonna fail. They're gonna you know either whittle their humidor down to the companies that can still support and still are willing to support these large sales staffs, and otherwise that they're gonna just sort of eventually die. 
Um, I think one one thing to add to the virtual events, I don't really know one way or the other if, how, how much they'll continue, but I, I do think that, like, I, I agree that Abe is a unique and in, in, in the sort of top, 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 top tier of retailers um, and, and runs, you know, a business that is a lot larger than most retail stores and a lot more dynamic than most retail stores. I, I think the, you know, the majority of these virtual events are not being done at retail stores like Abe's. They're being done at your local brick and mortar who probably doesn't have a website, who may take phone orders, who may do curbside delivery, who may do local delivery, and who may have tried to set up a Shopify store and, you know, spent two hours and then decided it wasn't worth it. Um, and I think the one thing that might change it is if these big companies say, hey, you know, if Drew Estate says, hey, we're not doing any more virtual events, that's got to wipe away what? at least 5% and probably close to 10% of the number of virtual events that are happening around the country. Um, and so I think that this may be an issue not of whether or not the retailers want them to continue, but it may be a scenario where if the manufacturers say, hey, we're no longer doing them, and if enough of the, the super big guys say, we're not doing virtual events unless they're for a retailer like Abe or unless you're going to do something beyond let's get on Instagram live for 30 minutes. Um, then I think that will wipe away a bulk of the virtual events that are, are, are being offered. I don't think a lot of these retailers are going to, you know, fight that or, or come up with the solutions that are needed for the manufacturers to continue to do them. The, the, the problem with the virtual events is obviously most of the retailers aren't jumping on it and a lot of manufacturers are trying to create this to make it the problem is the manufacturers and i haven't seen one not one come up with a formula that will work for almost every retailer including myself you know drew estates vssc events that they do when they make the packages and we see them my team sit there and look and says how are we going to make this a virtual event this doesn't this doesn't even work and we literally have to deconstruct it and reconstruct it to make it work. Because the last thing you want to do is have a virtual event and people start calling the shop. Because for us, it's not a virtual event. That becomes more of a nightmare thing because then you don't even know what's left. So we try to control it all where it's all, because they, they send you a, a, a limited amount of stuff. So if you're doing like a swag with purchase and I only got X number, I can't have people ordering online and taking phone orders on, on, on the thing because you're going to end up overselling it. So. I think that's part of the problem is none of these very – none that I've seen, to be honest with you. We just even did a very small one with Davidoff, and we kind of reconstructed it. Um, we, we've taken some of their models and just made them work, but none of them really are designed because when we see the Drew Estate events, like this would work if we had 150, 200 people in front of us and it was in a store. So when this ran out or this ran out, it was no big deal. The customer knew, well, this was all that was left. But now you're trying to translate that into a website of which the majority of the people don't have a website that can handle something like that or somebody in-house that can code majority it. majority of people don't have a website, Abe. Like I, That's true. And, and or, worse, or a point-of-sale system that goes beyond right. just the cash register. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. But, I, but like, this is my point, Abe, is I think that like the majority maybe or close to it of these virtual events are ones where the manufacturer said, here's our program, and the retailer said, I'm going to do that program. Yeah, I don't it, think that anyone ever said, I mean, for Christ's sake, Abe, you like brought in a TV studio for a virtual event that never crossed the mind of local cigar shop down the road from me. It, it never crossed the mind. It, it won't cross their mind. And so I think if Drew Estate says, hey, here's our virtual event, they'll say, great, I get a discount on product and you're going to give me free swag. I'll sign up for that thing. 
if Drew Estate says, hey, we no longer are doing virtual events, I think the retailer will just say, shrug, when is your rep coming by the store and when can we give away more free shit? I agree with that point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the concern, I think, with uh, with virtual events, I mean, I think about just kind of the health of the industry is, you know, it's that relationship between the the guy at the cash register or the guy at the humidor or the guy in the lounge and the, and the guy that walks in that's trying to get deeper into smoking cigars that it's that relationship where you develop knowledge of, 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 of the brands that, you know, you, you hone in on the things that you like and don't like, you learn how to, to humidify cigars, you learn how to cut them, you learn how to light them. You know, these are all things. I think if you, you've got this core group of consumers, these super consumers that are going to take advantage of any opportunity to interact with, with, uh, the principles of a company or with, with these celebrity retailers like Abe, but celebrity retailer, right? I wasn't, I wasn't going to say anything. Abe is going <laughs> to love that. Right. But when I'm saying these personality, you know, guys like Abe, like any chance I could sit in a room and talk to Abe, I'm going to do it because, you know, you know, especially if we're drinking a bottle of rum together. Right. But the, the thing, the thing is, is that if you want to build new cigar smokers, if you want to develop people from smoking one a month to one a week, from one a week to two a week or whatever, you have to have these face-to-face. So it really depends on this healthy network of really good retail tobacconists. And the, I love the fact that Famous and CI and JR are hitting on all cylinders. I think it does a, a good job of, of creating this efficiency in the market. Um, that's counteracting some of the cost increases. But if, if, if we don't figure out how to support and, and really develop uh, really good retailers, then you're not going to see uh, the, the, the kinds of people. And, and, and so the last thing I would add to that is that's where this new media component is filling a gap that is really super critical in terms of information on half will that didn't exist when I was getting started or, or, uh, you know, all these different YouTube channels, you know, as long as, as long as, as there are, as they, as they are helping to develop people's passion for cigar smoking and, and strengthening the community, I don't know how, how much the thirst traps really help the overall culture, you know, <laughs> the Instagram thirst traps, but, but I think, you know, some guy who loves cigars talking about CAO flavors, you know, whatever, that guy is helping to bring the whole community along, right? So, you know, to the extent that the retailers, some small retailers have been dropping the ball, um, the new media people have really pick, picked it up and, and closed that gap a little bit. And and I think that's why you see this kind of, especially during COVID, you see this resurgence in the community uh, because because people are able to, to do things with technology that, that weren't available 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to sit here and tell Abe how to how to do his business because he's he's just going to nod his head. He's he knows a celebrity stuff retailer. Way. Yeah, celebrity <laughs> retailer. But I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I look at virtual events. All it all it's doing, at, at its best case scenario, is, is uh, supplementing hand sales of cigars. I mean, the best case scenario, and and again, I'm not I'm not trying to tell Abe how to do his business because he knows it better than anybody, but having the customer come into the store where he can interact one on one with an educated and engaged uh, uh, tobacconist or retail person can't be replaced. That's, that is the perfect scenario because it's a social product typically engaged in a social manner. So, you know, to me, I look at the, the, the social media aspect and really that's, you know, to what Skip was saying, that brings in that sort of 
outside fold who maybe they don't come into the store, maybe they're not used to coming into the store, and you want the goal is to transition them to coming into the store to get that education one-on-one, -on -one, to do that hand sales, which is very challenging, I think. John, um, what do you do with all the people who aren't near a store? I mean, that, just, that's that's what I would say is, is the best case for scenario. Sure. Absolutely. You got that guy in you're Montana. Writing them, you're writing them right. off. No, 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 no. There are more smokers not near a cigar shop than there are near a cigar shop. No, no, no. Right. I'm not. I'm not saying you write yeah, them John off. John lives I'm, in Canada. He's very aware. I'm, yeah, I, I'm more aware of anyone. Uh, I happen to have a shop two blocks away, which is unusual because normally you have to drive three hours. But no, I mean that's the that's the benefit of of the of the virtual event is bringing those smokers into the fold. Um, but ultimately, you know, the best case scenario is having if you can have that customer come into the store for a one-on-one -on -one targeted timed experience where you can spend all that time with them and for the customers that you can't that's where that social that the social event the virtual event really gives that extra 20 percent 30 percent that we've been missing out i mean virtual events are not new this technology has been around for a decade i mean i can remember herfing virtually back in 2009 the fact that it's taken the industry 12 years to get to this point isn't that surprising but it's good, and I think it's I think it is healthy for the industry, and it should stick around. I think it's it is good to bring in more cigar smokers that, as you say, Abe, are not near a cigar shop. I mean, I just well, want and to be I, and clear. I, sorry, we're not we're not stopping doing events in the store. We made our right, living right. with with hand to hand, face to face contact. That's how I built my business. One of the reasons why I was hesitant to even start a website that Jonathan Drew actually like literally for two weeks bashed it into me that I need to start a website was I didn't know how to translate at that time dealing with that experience being able to, to physically talk and deal with consumers how do I do that through a website at a national level so we're not replacing that experience but there is a need because there's a lot of people who don't ever get that experience you know there's a very small amount of quality retail shops and what we've discovered is we can reach those people and now more than ever through social media I mean we built a private social group for our fans and consumers or people who want to learn more, more more about us. We started it like early this year, January. You know, and six months into it, we're over 3,000 people with a very active site and, and a culture that we built. And we're able to we're able to build that kind of, I mean, I could show you my PMs where we interact with these people. So does my team. We're able yeah, but to that's because that you do a good job. I mean, I, I think the one area where the virtual events will be just a, a unique sales tool is for the retailers that are, are like you that and quite frankly the ones that are slightly larger than you that have the resources to pour in where they can make an experience out of it and then they can follow up and do all the things that are necessary to keep somebody that's three thousand miles away from their store engaged and so if you're a retailer that's going to a crusty old humidor that's never you know the bathroom hasn't been cleaned in two months and all of a sudden you see that there's a Drew Estate event where they're given you know they're selling a limited edition cigar that your local retailer is never in in you know 16 years ever going to carry and you happen to log on and you go on smoke in and then you buy the cigar and you get a handwritten note whether it's from a store like smoke in or whether I saw Mike from cigar hustler in the comments he does the same thing and you know and all of a sudden you start getting the emails and you get the invite to the Facebook group and you're listening to the radio show that both you and Cigar Hustler have, you know, some format of 
all of a sudden it's a it's got to be a, a a game changing experience for how you as a consumer can purchase cigars and so if you're somebody you know in the position where you're investing the resources and where you're committed to to following through beyond just the 30 minutes of the event yeah, I think it's going to be a great tool for customer acquisition um, and maybe a, a better tool for that than it is for keeping your current customers that are 15 miles away from your store engaged. Well, and I would add to that that there's this new thing, which I don't know that it's new, but I think it's it's going to become a bigger trend of like what we did with Weasel Fest and what Jonathan Drew, Drew is doing at uh, South Fork Ranch, um, where you're bringing retailers – you, you, I'm bringing my best retailers from all over the country to Austin and I'm bringing our super fans from all over the country to Austin and our people who have been disappointed because their retailer just, you know, does a half-assed job and doesn't carry the cigars that they want anymore uh, and, and never ever would get craft or, or those kinds of things. That guy is interacting with Jeff Mutet from Indiana. Or that guy's interacting with, with uh, Scallywag from Arizona or Rosie and Sam from Arizona, or Hustler from Florida. And so now you've got new media, you've got uh, retail, really strong retailers for our brand, you've got really strong fans for our brand, and you bring them into an experience like Weasel Fest. And, you know, I could, I could tell you how great Weasel Fest was, but, uh, you know, it's one thing to go to a trick-or-treat fest where there's 20 different people trying to sell you their cigars. And it's another thing when the brand itself throws a, a world-class party and and you meet people who are kind of in the same position and you're not being pressured to buy stuff right you're just experiencing and those retailers that take that and 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 like you said follow up and follow through i guarantee you there's a lot of those retailers that came to weasel fest and maybe some of them are in the comments that could tell you they probably picked up a dozen new customers uh at weasel fest and are are going to grow you know our business in their store because the guy who, who never goes to events from from who was in the Navy that came in from Japan is now buying from from one of those guys. Right. Or the guy from Montana, the couple that came from Montana that's never even been in a, a brick and mortar store came to our event and is now like, man, I, you know, I've been buying online. But, you know, now I'm going to buy from this brick and mortar guy who I know. So, um, you know, that's another dynamic that's been added. And like you said, the virtual events, I think, can can. Um, can help someone like Mike at Cigar Hustler or someone like Abe can continuously over the year connect with those people until they see them as friends again at Weasel Fest or at, you know, DE25 or whatever. Well, would you guys agree that on average, the, you know, your average medium sized cigar shop in the United States is, is not going to have the resources available, the capital available to put on a massive online event where it, it will where, where they'll get enough return on investment you know like like a a, a large retailer like smoke in or or something like that to put on a are, is a, is a small to medium retailer somewhere in the country gonna be able to put on an event where that is at such a scale where they'll get the the return on that you have to build up to it. You have to build up to it, like Abe said. So first, it, it really just depends what you're talking about. Are we talking about like what we did back in February? No. I mean, I, I even think some of the bigger guys from us won't be able to do it because it's just not about money. Right. That was that was a lot of work and production. I mean that that. 
that that's a that's a big thing. But we've done a lot of smaller events, small even to the point where we only had sixty people limited for a, a night in the life of a day in the life of Winston Churchill, where we had someone from Davidoff go and we did this whole experience. We even made smoking bow ties and did a bow tie demonstration. Just sixty people. Yeah, and those are very doable. And we've had now we just had an event with Steve Saka a couple weeks ago. Um, very doable event. I mean, you know, really, I mean, it's even doable with a Shopify if you really wanted to. So, yeah, it's doable. And it's doable for a small guy to do a great event that he could do. So, look, just to put it in perspective, we did an event with Steve Saka yesterday, uh, a couple weeks ago. And when back in the day when there wasn't a lot of mega events being done on the retail level, I'm probably going back about 20 years ago, 15 to 20 years ago, where I used to do one every month and we got two to 300 people every month that would drive everywhere from Miami, from North of Vero. And they would all come to West Palm. We'd have live music, cater food, booze. We had literally 200 to 300 people every month for eight months out of the year. We didn't do it in the summer because it got too hot, you know, eight or nine months of the year. We probably had half that activity volume-wise of people during the virtual soccer event we had. No music, no catered food, no free booze, you know, none of the overhead that would normally partake. And we probably did triple what we ever did in one of those events. So it's it's look, it's very doable. A lot of it has to do with just the will and you know the, the effort of execution, which a lot of retailers just don't want to do or don't have. I mean, let's just face it. I mean, you know, a lot of our industry, the retail industry that we're in is not made up of the most innovative and savvy people. Um, a lot of motivated or motivated or even motivated. And, and, and some of them purposely look, they're, they're not in it to build an empire. They got a job and some of them are retired. This is their retirement job. Some of it's hobbies for some people. Maybe it's just a place to smoke. And some of it's just a place to smoke. So, I mean, that that's the industry we're in. But is it doable, uh, Matt? I think 100% it's doable for a yeah, small build, guy. And, and building on what Matt, what Abe said, I mean, you, you, you couldn't – I mean, for a retailer to say, well, I don't, you know, I don't know how to make that successful, listen, you're at a time where people like Abe – I mean, I, I bet if I was a retailer, I could probably message Abe and say, hey, I don't know how to do this. Can you give me advice? And Abe probably would. You have retailers like Dave Garofalo literally writing a book – you could just go spend 30 bucks on his book and it would tell you how to run your business more successfully than you already are. So I, I don't think like I'm unfair here because I'm not running a retail location in the States, but I've, I've helped run retail locations in Canada. And I can tell you not having lounges, it's a lot more complicated up here than it is in the States. So, you know, to what Abe was saying, if you want to be successful, you can be successful. All the tools are out there. There's lots of free tools available to, to take strategies that are already in place and already being executed. You don't have to blow your whole wad on one event, but you do have to have the will and the desire to, to take those steps to be successful. And, you know, if you don't want to, that's your prerogative, but it's not because the resources aren't available. They are, they are more, more available now than they've ever been at any time in the history of cigars. Absolutely. And, and, and first off, I get asked regularly and, and I have no problem. I mean, in fact, um, uh, a retailer from Wisconsin who did an annual event and we went up there for KMA and we saw the event and I gave him some advice. And I invited him to come down to the Great Smoke so he could learn and, and hopefully improve his event. It happens regularly. I've done it. 
we're, we're getting ready to open up a new fulfillment center warehouse. I had no knowledge of a warehouse. I went to everybody's warehouse, including Jeff from Corona. Uh, we drove up there. Tanya was nice enough to walk us through the warehouse, show us what they did, show us some mistakes they had made. And, you know, this industry is very giving. It, it really is. You have to be a real, you know, jerk, you know, for people not to, to help you. So it's there. But, like, I don't know who said Skip or, or Charlie. Some of these guys, or maybe it was you, John. Some of these guys just aren't that motivated. And that's the unfortunate part of a lot of people who are in my side of this industry. How much time did you guys budget for the uh, virtual event segment? <laughs> it's already it's already spent. It's already spent. Really, I, mean, I, 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 I think the um, you know to, to Skip's point about Weasel Fest and obviously Drew Estate's doing a massive event. Uh, it's only positive for the industry whether they have to drag retailers and and I don't think consumers but retailers kicking and screaming into the fold of success. I mean, ultimately, it helps the industry. It obviously helps the manufacturers directly. Um, I, I see it all as a very positive thing. You know, any time that you can you can knowledge share and, and hopefully motivate them either, you know, directly or indirectly to be successful, um, the healthier the industry are, the healthier it is. I mean, I think Skip said at the top of the hour, uh, it's probably best if some retailers just went out of business. But, you know, that sounds a little cruel to say. <laughs> But ultimately, you know, it's the same could be true from the manufacturing side. It'd probably be better for the industry if some manufacturers just went out of business and their tobacco went to another factory who did it better. Um, but it's, it's cigar, you know, cigar Darwinism. Sorry, yeah, cigar yeah. Darwinism, absolutely. I mean, well, but the problem well, is, like, John, yeah. I, I had to explain to a retailer in Dallas that I think runs a decent business about why having the Drew Estate event 20 miles away from their store was a good thing. Right, like, right. Skip and I have a running joke. If if you went around as a manufacturer and gave a uh, hundred dollar bills to retailers, like there would be a revolt. Uh, like they just, you know, they'd be like, "Oh, like you have this much money, like, like oh, do you, can you give it to me in five twenties and not a hundred dollar bill?" Like it would be the responses that would happen if you just started mailing retailers hundred dollar bills would be as a manufacturer would be hilarious. People would just like. Like, oh, great, what do I have to do? Put this on my taxes now? <laughs> yeah, it'd be like, it'd be like, oh, like, Skip, like, uh, the $100 bill was great, but, like, that price increase two years ago, that was a real fuckery there. And you'd be like, it would just, it would be hilarious. It, it would almost, like, Half Wheel might sponsor it. Like, we might throw, like, three grand at it just to see if we could be assured we could get the responses. Because it, these retailers, so many of them, they just look at everything that happens as an affront to what they're doing they assume that the world is out to fuck them they assume that what they did last week is what they should be doing and you know every single interaction has to be how are you trying to screw me and so you know something like that drew estate event where there's going to be presumably a thousand plus customers coming into dallas or you know congregating in dallas uh, where Drew Estate's dumping a whole bunch of money, where all of the Drew Estate sales force and all the Drew Estate team, and where they're bringing in, you know, a who's who of Houston rappers. Shout out to Mike Jones. Uh, like, I mean, they he's just no, are he's like no, this. He's, he's no Scarface, but he's no Scarface, you know, or Superphonicos. But like, they just, you know, they assume <laughs> that like, like this is a bad thing, and it's like, I, I, is it a bad thing? It seems like a great thing, um, and it seems like it's a great thing that it's in your backyard. Like, it can only help your business. 
Um, unless you were really content on what's the date? Uh, how about that cigar from the ad read? September 25th. Yeah, unless you were hell-bent that September 25th was going to be the day that you were going to sell 10 boxes of Nica Rustica, like, it, in which case, it might help. Uh, I, I don't understand why you should look at this and go, this is a bad thing for my business. Yeah, I mean, I guarantee, because I'm going to be flying down for that, and so I guarantee, you know, however many hundreds slash thousands of dollars I end up spending on at retail locations around Dallas, there's going to be a large quantity of them that go... And just come to the halfway office and just steal shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, you know, I'm I'm only in it for the free samples. Um, we got plenty. But, nice, uh, but yeah, there's absolutely going to be shops that I'm going to go to, and they're going to have they're not going to put the the two and two together to go. The only reason this guy just spent three hundred dollars in my shop is because it happens to be Drew Estate's doing a thing this weekend. No, they're going to look at it and go, he's here for the Drew Estate event, and if the Drew Estate event wasn't happening, I would have gotten six hundred. Right. Without realizing yeah. that you would have never been here to begin with without exactly. it. Exactly. Or, or yeah. why didn't my why didn't my Drew Estate rep tell me I should have ordered more Drew Estate for this week? <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what it's gonna be. And why did they give me hundred dollar bills? Right. <laughs> I mean, okay. look, I mean, honestly, and and you know, this is a little bit of inside baseball, but Keystone margins is a pretty standard thing in our business. And if you can't figure in out how US. to probably explain what a keystone in, is. In in the US. If if you can't figure out how to make a, a profit on a hundred percent gross margin, then you're an idiot. Period. In in the in the, in full stop, right? But it's not even Keystone. It's Keystone plus whatever the the deal was plus the free right. swag. It, it's right. you know like you, consumers want to know why cigars have. You know, the price increases on cigars have happened. Yeah, tobacco's gone up and labor's gone up. But, you know, a lot of it is because there's a lot of free shit that's being given away and someone's got to pay for it. And at the end of the day, it's always going to be the consumer that pays for it. Yeah. Always. Well, so speaking of uh, uh, something Charlie mentioned a minute ago, which is uh, everybody out to screw you, let's talk about the FDA. Um <laughs> Uh, so, and I want to start with Charlie on this one, uh, because half wheels reporting on, on FDA related stuff is, is always pretty phenomenal. And so the recent, uh, appeals court ruling, uh, sort of backtracking on judge Meta's ruling, uh, just came out. So, uh, what's, what, what are, what are the long-term effects? Um, and are there any short-term effects? I, I don't think there are any short-term effects, but if, if there are, let you know. Let me know. What do you think, Charlie? I mean, um, clearly, so, clearly, you didn't read the article. No, I did read the article. That's <laughs> that's that's, um, why that's why I'm going with Charlie first because he he wrote the book on it. Right. Uh, yeah. The short-term effects are that it, it's, it's nothing um, in reality. Uh, this was an appeals court, so the cigar industry lost. Uh, you know, parts of this case, and they decided to appeal them. Um, and so they went to the uh, the federal appeals court for the District of Columbia. Um, so a three-judge panel. Um, it was a 3-0 unanimous uh, decision, um, and it was a 3-0 unanimous decision on every single point that the cigar industry challenged um, from the decision they lost in the, the sort of single-judge court. Um, you know, the, the only... I would say there's two effects. One of them is that uh, 
as I wrote in sort of our explainer articles, which have become super popular uh, amongst the FDA stuff, is that this is one less bullet, one fewer bullet in the chamber. And uh, I don't know how many bullets the cigar industry has left, hypothetically, if money is no object. But, um, you know, it's not an unlimited supply. And so uh, you want to sort of, you know, if you're going to spend the money and, and go after an appeal, you, you want to win it. Um, and uh, that certainly is not what happened. Um, I, I think the second sort of effect is that uh, it, it's expensive. This was hundreds of thousands of dollars just for the appeal. Um, and this was unexpectedly bad there were it was very clear um i'm not an attorney um but you know i've certainly read a lot of of legal briefs and this is not my first rodeo when it comes to listening to an appeals case and much like with the supreme court um what happens during the oral um sort of hearing um so the the time sort of if you envision a law and order episode most of what happens in a court uh doesn't actually happen in a courtroom it's people writing documents submitting them to the court and the other side writes a document and submits it to the court um and oftentimes the judges will you know ultimately their decisions are usually rendered it's not like a, a criminal trial where you see the judge you know call the jury in and say here's what happened um and there are only a few times in an appeals hearing where the, the two sides actually verbally communicate with the judges. Um, and much like with the Supreme Court, what you can gauge when you're watching these things is based off the judge's questions, you can usually get an indication of what the judges are thinking and, and basically where they're sort of calling legal bullshit on arguments. Um, it was very clear in the hearing that the user fee contention, which is a, a fee that is charged to all cigars that are imported or made in the U.S., um, it's, you know, uh, Skip might be able to correct me here, but it's, you know, four or five cents uh, more or less per cigar uh, that gets paid. Uh, those are, that was very clear that that was a contention the cigar industry was not going to win based off of the skepticism the judges were displaying. The rest of it, seemed like there was a shot um and what ended up happening was uh just uh you know a drive-by shooting of the cigar industry's legal arguments um with apparently unlimited bullets it, it was disastrous in terms of how poorly it could have gone it's hard to imagine the judges or you know i guess in this case the judge who wrote the majority opinion uh or the opinion um having a, a worse opinion of the cigar industry's legal arguments um and uh it was not great um and it was not cheap um <laughs> yeah I, yeah whatever we but talk. the important part is to understand is that it's it we didn't lose any rights in the appeals we were trying to get some ground right. back and we didn't get it and it was very ugly in the the rejection of trying to get any of that ground back um but it doesn't mean that there's got to be warning labels on cigar boxes tomorrow it doesn't mean that flavored cigars are banned tomorrow it doesn't mean that pipe tobacco is banned tomorrow it just means that you know the status quo isn't going to change and uh, at least based off of this decision um and it, it costs uh hundreds of thousands of dollars to get to that point or, or just millions. on the appeal or millions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't no, think I'm, I'm at saying, liberty. I'm saying the, the original case that led yeah, to the, the appeal. Overall. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, but but here's the thing is that, and I, I mentioned this in the article, and I think it's really important, and I, I think it's really important that the cigar industry, the leadership that takes the effort on the legislative efforts, which there's a lot of criticism to be had about their, not necessarily their approach to the legal strategy, but in terms of, of how they interact with the cigar industry and certainly with consumers. 
um, like the lawsuit itself has been worth it. The lawsuit has gotten to a point where, you know, Skip doesn't have to put warning labels on boxes. Abe doesn't have to put warning labels on the emails that he sends his consumers, which but that, that issue. But we're not the ones that won that. We are the ones that won that. Well, we won it the first time for the premium cigars in Meta's court. The other non-premium entities in the cigar industry, so the bigger tobacco companies like Swisher um, and like ITG brands, appealed the decision, arguing that the logic that said that that it shouldn't apply to Macanudos should also apply to Phillies and, and Swisher Suites, etc. And an appeals court sided with them that said, "Hey, we're actually going to extend this to all cigars." But we were we won that, um, and and we won that cleanly, and that wasn't part of what was being discussed in, in this appeals decision. Um, and I really think it's important that we look at the the collective lawsuit, which has definitely cost millions upon millions of dollars, and understand that there have been very clear wins, many of which only apply to cigars, premium cigars, so not flavored cigars, but you know most of the cigars that you could find in a humidor um, in your town. You know those cigars aren't subject to the pre-market approval regulations right now. Cigar premium cigars are the only category where that's uh, applicable, where that's been delayed. Cigars in general are the only category in pipe tobacco, are the only categories where the warning labels aren't required. And I, I think it's really important with the warning labels. That could have been such a problem if that if FDA ever figures out what the advertising restrictions are going to be for warning labels and the requirements, it could have meant that Abe was going to have to submit his, basically his, his sales for and his promotions for 365 days out. He could have had to submit a plan to FDA saying, here's what I'm going to be advertising nine months from now. Um, well, most of, warning most of label us, I'm going to put on that. Most of us did submit that plan and that plan was submitted. And, but uh, I'm, I'm talking about skip, not your boxes. I'm talking about no. Like, I completely understand. They never defined advertising, but I, no. I think this is really important. They <laughs> never defined what advertising yeah. was, and it right. could have. They gave some suggestions about what they thought might be advertising, and they left the door open to where a retailer like Abe would have had to have said, "Here is the event I'm having nine months from now." And here's the warning label I'm going to put on the poster. And here's the warning label I'm going to put on the Instagram post. And here's the warning label that I'm going to put in the email promoting the event. And if they had done that, to your point about Drew Estate and, and what happens if acid goes away, imagine the shit show that would take place if CI had to be submitting their catalog and their daily emails nine to 12 months in advance to the FDA, not because they need to get necessarily approval, but they just have to, they're legally required to be telling them what they're going to be doing a year from now. That would have caused, a, if you thought 2019 was a meltdown, uh, imagine when a retailer like CI, just CI alone is hamstrung about what their promotions are going to be for the next year. Like, it, it no, would I, have been I, I, a completely I, I, lost year. I completely understand that. What my point was is from a manufacturing brand perspective, that was required and it was submitted. Not from a retailer perspective, but from a brand perspective about what advertising we would do, which included everything down to social media, uh, any kind of advertising or marketing. Yeah, because they never defined... Right. FDA has never had to come up with their own rules about advertising in a broad sense. All of those things right. were done either via the master settlement agreement, which is a legal agreement that happened between Big Tobacco and, and right. the government and, and something that Big Tobacco the, promoted and, because it saved the, them a lot of the, money in the long run. Right. And the FTC. Or, 
Yeah, or the FTC warning labels, but that had nothing to do with, I mean, it had a little bit to do with advertising, but it's not the same extent of what FDA's scope could have been. It might still be for e-cigarette manufacturers and, and non-cigar and pipe tobacco people. Um, and because FDA never defined, is this advertising or is this not advertising, that is, a, the to me, when I looked at the regulations in 2016 as they were finalized, that was the thing that stood out. Everything else, you're like, you know, it's going to cost us more money and we can figure this out. But the advertising re regulations, as they would relate to retailers and how the, the big retailers conduct business, that was the part where it was like, holy shit, they could and, put the industry in a virtual standstill for a year if and, this becomes right. rules. And, and the testing was another one like that. But so but the, from the a, testing from a, is still potentially on the table, but that's something that like you could throw <laughs> money at the problem. The the retail advertising regulations, that's something where like time becomes the, the resource that you can't throw money at that. And, and they really could have, and I suppose they could still, that would be just catastrophic for the industry. Like certainly after a year, yeah, you could figure out a way to, to adapt for it. But if CI can't send out catalogs for, for even six months, imagine how much revenue that takes off the board. Look, I, I can't, I, I can't even. There's things I can't do in Europe uh, under TPT two, TBD two, because of the restrictions that exist there. So I'm I'm very familiar with it. You know, here's what I would say from a to your question on a positive note. The best two things we did in the last five years was the effort, every effort collectively. Uh, some people more than others. Uh, some financially. Some with their time. That we did to prove two things. One, or to make progress on two areas. One, that consumers don't consume our, that uh, miners do not consume our product and that our retailers do a good job of keeping them out of the reach of children and that we don't actively, uh, on the, for the most part, uh, try to generate demand or, you know, build new young cigar smokers, right? That uh, youth access issue and also the issue of our product is different, Right that we don't have the same health effects, that we don't have the same... Uh, but Skip, that uh, issue is unsettled. Well, what I'm saying is we've made a lot of progress in the last five years on those two areas, and but that progress is what's translated into us being the lower priority for the FDA into some of these, these judges making uh, uh, judgment calls on, on, on these other detailed issues. The The... the bad legal arguments that we've spent millions of dollars. I mean, one of the things that came through in this appeal, and, and I haven't spent it, don't, I mean, it's not me. I didn't waste my money, so I don't feel stupid. But there, there, there are a lot of things that in, the, in that decision and in the previous decision at the lower court level that specifically said your lawyers did not do their job. You, you're arguing Well, it's wrong, a very specific okay, piece. Okay, all right. Okay. The, my my point. Okay, well, if if you're just well, no, gonna, no, I, like I'm going to explain that because I I think it's it. You're you're 100 correct. They got chastised for there was a decision in Mar there was a case in a federal court in Maryland which was different than the federal court case that the cigar industry has argued. And in the Maryland case, a group of pediatricians and anti-tobacco groups sued the FDA, saying that the Congress, who gave the FDA the authority to regulate these products didn't give the FDA the authority to just come up with arbitrary deadlines, um, which the FDA has come up with. And the cigar industry's attorneys stayed out of that case until the last minute. And the FDA was arguing 
um, or the Department of Justice on the FDA's behalf was arguing that they still had that authority because the FDA doesn't, just like us, the FDA doesn't want to give up any potential rights. Um, they want to argue they have the largest scope possible, including making arbitrary deadlines. And the cigar industry stayed out of that case until the last minute. And the, what the court system has said in multiple instances is uh, that's not okay. You, you can't decide that this issue isn't relevant until it looks like you're about to lose. And then you go all guns blazing, which they didn't really do, but they got involved at the last minute because you don't like how you think this is about to come out. And expect that the other side, not FDA, but in this case, the, the pediatricians and the anti-tobacco groups, is just gets to go along with it and has to spend more money because you guys chose to not say anything for months and months and months. And the cigar industry has tried, or the attorneys representing the cigar trade groups have tried to argue that that's not how that went down or that they're somehow within their rights. And multiple judges on the federal level have told them to go fuck themselves. Yeah, that's one of many, one of many examples, yes. Okay, so let's uh, let's transition into this next question. And I've seen, uh, you know, over the years we've seen this, you know, here and there. But it seems like there's more of this recently. So I, I want everybody's take on if it's if it's actually an uptick or if it's a, uh, you know, always been going on. The the game of musical chairs that's going on with cigar factories. Uh, when you have a cigar that's made at a, at factory A, and then uh, and it's made at factory A for two years, three years, one year, whatever it is, and then all of a sudden you hear an announcement that now this cigar is going to be made at factory B, uh, could be a different factory in the same city. It could be in a whole another country. Is this is it much ado about nothing or is it meaningful and why well i mean i don't know look if changes like have, have happened it's usually two things one is somebody's not happy with how their cigars are being produced or two they're not getting their cigars because obviously that manufacturing place is more involved in getting other product out particularly their own and they're not getting their attention so either way at the end it's affecting a consumer in a negative way one they're getting cigars that aren't to the par or quality that the brand owner would love wants to see it to be or two they're not just getting the cigar at all because it's just not being made so i i don't think those changes have a negative impact um you know, either either uh, uh, the same or close or similar or better quality cigar will be made and hopefully get into consumers' hands, um, or it won't. But I, I don't think the, the brand owner in those positions make those decisions unless typically it needs to be done. I'm, I'm sure Skip will be able to give a clinic on this, but um, just stepping in so I can get two words in before that happens. <laughs> um I think it's the natural it's the natural byproduct of of not being a factory owner. I mean, if you if you want to be a smaller brand, if you don't want to own your own factory, one of the consequences of that is that you're at the mercy of the factory you've decided to do business with. And you know, in the case of a medium or larger manufacturer, especially you know the last talking about it nonstop, as their production uh, demand has gone up, unfortunately, if uh, regardless of what your relationship is with that company. 
they might have to say goodbye because they have to focus on their brands. Now, Skip's in a unique position where he's limited the number of, of other brands that he's manufactured at his factory. But, you know, the same is going to be true of any brand owner that doesn't own a factory is that eventually there's a potential that that factory is going to have capacity issues and not be able to deliver your product. And we say that all the time. I mean, there's there's brands. I mean, Espinosa is a good example where they had to move production to a different factory. Um, and that was just, you know, that was just a production problem. That wasn't like... They said, we can no longer produce this volume of cigars at this factory, and we have to make that choice. Um, and I think that happens all the time. It just happens that it coincided with this massive uptick in demand, and as a result, some of these smaller brands are being squeezed out. Skip, go. No, I, I don't know that I could add much to that. I mean, it's it's an accumulation of everything we've just said, which is if I can't, if I don't have enough experienced rollers to make my own cigars, to meet the demand for my own cigars, and I can't find the, the very specific pro, uh, types of tobacco that I may have let other people use in my factory because I had a lot of it before, uh, then I have to tell that guy, hey, I can't make your cigar. Uh, uh, so, you know, Placencia is making a lot of their own cigars now, so they're making less for other people. E.P. Carrillo uh, had, has had a, an awesome run with Cigar Aficionado. And he, he himself is probably having challenges getting certain kinds of tobacco that he may have used in the past uh, in some of of his customers' cigars. So, um, you know, the, the, the challenge is going to be seeing if 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 E.P. Carrillo can't get ASP Lajero or can't get Jalapa uh, to, enough to make his cigars and yours, how is, you know, Factory X going to get enough to make up that difference? If, if, if Ernie can't get it, how... How is the other factory going to get it? So, you know, maybe they're going to change their blends. Maybe, they're, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, if Ernie Carrillo can't get... But, but uh, sometimes it's not just tobacco-related, Skip. Sometimes it's just labor-related as well. I, sa- I said that as well. Yeah. I mean, that, that's oh, true. Abe, you just lost your celebrity retailer t-shirt. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying I started with... Didn't, did I not start with, you yeah. don't have enough rollers right i mean that's absolutely true it could be a lot of things it could be something as simple as i'm just tired of you know dealing with this brand because they're a pain in the ass they don't pay their bills they don't they they they, they you know they're just more effort than what they're worth it could be that too right and to be clear this is not a new phenomenon this no going no on. it's not it's, it's been going not. on forever i mean we're just yeah. media now because of news is people are more attuned to it but i mean it's worked for the better for a lot of companies i mean look what happened with cao and they took their anniversary series from the Donald Douglas factory and then and, and Perdomo started making them. That that Cameroon anniversary of Maduro went through the roof. So sometimes or, you or, up- Right. Or when when someone like Dion moved from one factory to Agonorsa, right? Um, yeah. Sometimes relationships don't work. So it's, it's maybe not even labor or materials. Sometimes it's just it's a change that's necessary. And, and look, if nothing else, what COVID created was an environment where – Everything new was on the table, and if you had this kind of uh, place to catch your breath from from the daily run rate of just trying to keep up to actually sitting back and evaluating your business and saying, maybe we need to go in a different direction, uh, either from the brand or the manufacturing side, uh, that's why that's why you saw a lot of changes, and you'll probably see more changes, you know, and then you know even going forward because the the. The whole environment, just in retail in general, don't even talk about cigars. If you're a if you're a guy who sells blue jeans, if you're Levi Strauss, 
the last 30 years have completely <laughs> you don't even exist anymore right so um if amazon sold cigars there would be very few retail cigar retailers in, in the country and the cigar business would slowly go back to the the you know the atrophied stagnant thing that we were in the mid 80s right because because no one could compete with amazon on in that model and and the what gives the, the vitality to our business is our strong retail you know environment and in the relationships and the the culture around our business so you know the business is going to continue to change um but there are a lot of of concerns on the manufacturing side um that are leading to these changes uh that's undeniable do you think it's always in in a company's best interests to disclose when they move uh facing from one factory to to another no i would i would say 10 or 12 years ago no but i mean look you know consumers aren't like consumers 15 years ago where all they knew was the stamp on the bottom of the box said this is a product that came from honduras consumers know what part of the plant certain tobaccos come from and how it's fermented in the polone it's unreal do do they know or are they just told and they think they know well, that, yeah, that, but yeah. yeah. I mean, the first thought I had, Matt, when you asked the question was, I think the only thing that's really changed is that more companies are willing to disclose it. Um, you know, Alec Bradley a couple weeks ago sent out a press release saying, hey, we're moving this production from here to here. That was something that never would have ever been said 10 years ago. Um, and quite frankly, 95% of the time, I'm guessing at least, it, it isn't disclosed because why rock the boat? You know, it'd be one thing if you were saying, and I credit Alan Rubin, he's one of the few that's ever done it. I mean, he gave an interview with, with Cigar Insider or Cigar Fisano where he said after they got the number one cigar of the year, he said, hey, we couldn't make these cigars properly. It, it fucked our business. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're willing to admit that and say, hey, look, like we need to make this change because we need to make the products better, that's one thing. But, you know, for a variety of reasons, including... You know, you don't want to throw factories under the bus. Most companies aren't ever going to want to disclose that because it's just going to mean the consumer is going to walk into a store and say, hey, how have you changed this product today? And I don't think that's in the best interest unless there's something wrong with the product and the manufacturer is actually willing to admit or I guess the brand owner is willing to admit that there is something wrong with the product. Well, I'll tell you that what factory a cigar is made in is as common now as what wrapper is on the cigar. Um, you can't. You're not going to do it unless you, unless when the cigar is released, the the line and half wheels article is uh, the factory making this was not disclosed, uh, and forevermore no one ever knows where it's made. Um, for all the cigars that are released on the market today, and all the people making cigars and selling cigars under their brands, uh, generally. Uh, an average consumer is going to know what factory those cigars are going to make. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think, think that's, that's the case. True. Yeah, I, I go back well, to the, the majority be, of beer be buyers enough. buy Bud Light. They don't buy barrel-aged creamsicle stout. Okay, but there's 15% of the cigar consumers that want oh, to know what Oh, the majority of your customers are. would well, know. Well, my customers for sure. Yeah, but not the majority yeah. of cigar customers. Yeah, I'd, say, I mean, I'd like, say the majority of Abe's customers, unless the band physically changed or something about that cigar physically changed, I don't. even if the blend 
legitimately changed. They decided to use a different binder and the whole profile changed. I'm not confident that the majority of the average cigar consumer would even notice. Realistically, I don't think that. And I mean, yeah, like a great. To that, but. Okay, so the majority I mean, of average is probably a truer statement, but more would notice today than ever before. Oh, absolutely. But that's like, what I, I, that's what I was saying, Abe. That's what I yeah. meant. I should. But like one of the greatest like factory moves is Oliva in their process of you know expanding their factory, like they moved Florida Oliva production to SCGS to Lee. Um, right. Like I I think we can all agree if you've ever been to that factory, it's a it's a little bit of a shit show. Um, it's the only factory I've ever seen that's let gringos operate a stripping machine with no instruction, <laughs> which would be 16,000 OSHA violations if that was in the U.S. The fact that they took a bundle cigar that sells very well, that's been around forever, and were able to move it to a different factory, and no one said a peep about it, as far as I know, uh, for a temporary period of time is crazy. Because that would be an area where, as I mentioned an hour ago, like if somebody was going to notice, it'd be the guy smoking Florida Oliva. It wouldn't be the guy smoking, you know, Cro-Magnon. It wouldn't be the guy smoking Opus X. It wouldn't be the guy smoking Dion stuff. It's because those consumers, more or less, like they smoke a lot of different stuff. They may smoke only Romacraft, but they Skip has very few consumers, I would imagine, that only smoke a very specific one skew of Romacraft. But Florida Oliva. I'm guessing has a whole mess of consumers that only smoke one skew of Florida Oliva and they've only been smoking that, you know, they've only smoked that skew basically unless somebody gives them a cigar for the last five years. Yeah, and the fact they were able to do that in secrecy or, or without anyone realizing speaks volumes to me at least about how easy it is to switch factories and how little people will, will notice. I mean, I'm a different, yeah, I'm a different level consumer, but I remember when CAO moved from, from, Costa Rica to, or from Perdomo to Costa Rica to to uh, the Latin Cigar Factory. But that was I, also I, so many years ago where, like, I, I don't, you know, the quality, the difference between Factory A and Factory B at that point has to be a much larger gap than what it is today. I mean, that's fair. I mean, you know, I mean, John, in Canada, I mean, the, the guys who, who buy, who spend the money on Cuban cigars... You know, they want to know the box code. They want to know if it was made in Laguito or if it was made in Partagas or if it right. was made in H. Upman, right? I think so, you're talking about two completely different consumer bases. Absolutely. So, I, mean, I think so, too. Yeah. I mean, I'm on a lot of groups. Everybody here is on a lot of groups. No one's talking about Florida Oliva bundles. I mean, right. <laughs> I, think, I think that consumer that they're selling to is literally the guy who doesn't interact anywhere, is not listening to any of you media guys, not – He's he found a cigar he liked at that price point. He's buying it. Has may not even know what the company Oliva is for the most part. No, he probably says it's Florida Olivia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but but I'll, but I'll tell you one thing that that customer does know: if that cigar changes, oh yeah, absolutely, they'll know it before anybody else does. Oh, that cigar, right? really, so, that cigar goes so, to the order. They'll know. Right. So if Gilberto is is using a certain kind of tobacco from his fields, and it, well, now he's, he's selling that tobacco he's to Scandinavia, passed away, but. No, I'm saying the younger, right? So, oh, yeah, yeah, if, the, if if he's giving his tobacco to Scandinavia and they're making the exact same cigar in the same bunching process, and and then that bundle guy may never know, and may never care. But I I can tell you that if I started letting uh, Esteban's brother right down the street start making cigars for us, uh, my consumer, ninety five percent of my consumers would want to know about it and would find out about it soon enough. Yeah, but Skip, what were to happen if, let's say, a, a filler leaf that you're using, like a quarter of a leaf for one of your blends, 
if all of a sudden you're like, you know what, we, we just can't, like, we had the inventory, but we've been trying for the last 18 months. We can't find this quality of, of tobacco. We're rejecting I, I, everything. I would stop and you making change the filler leaf. I would stop yeah, making but like, But you're a unique case. But, like, would you, if, if gun to your head, you had to keep making the cigar, like, you may admit that you changed the filler leaf. But you know damn well that 95-plus percent of the factory brand owners, et cetera... Like, I mean, think about it. If you're a client of a factory, how many times does your blend change where the factory doesn't tell you? Every fucking time. Of course. And, and, and look, I'll go back to the original question because, like Abe said, we're having two different conversations here. The, you know, the original thing is, is it, you know, is the dynamic that's going on, the announcements that are going on, is it better... I mean, is it new? Is it what's happening? What's causing it? And, and is it something that people should just kind of not talk about? My point is, it, just, it depends on who you are. But for me, uh, it would be important for me to, t- you know, to tell people, hey, like, I'll give you an example. Uh, there was a cigar that came out uh, five years ago, six years ago, maybe even longer now. Uh, the Leaf and Bean by Esteban, Right. So the Leaf and Bean by Esteban was a little small project that we made for Jim Robinson's store in, uh, in, in uh, the Strip in uh, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. And uh, Esteban blended it. Esteban procured the tobacco. It was like 20,000 cigars that lasted three years or something. Uh, Jim came to us when, when Leaf by Oscar, when all these other Leaf buys became really national brands, right? Jim came to us and said, hey, I want to make the Leaf by Esteban a national brand. And I told Jim, hey, there's no way that we can make that in our factory. We just don't have the capacity. And so uh, what happened was we moved it to another smaller factory. Uh, it still was called Leaf by Esteban because that's the brand. That's the, the thing. Esteban helped procure the tobacco, helped select the tobacco, trained the rollers, did everything he could do to maintain the credibility of his name on that cigar. But we made it super clear to everybody from the gate. Like it more, like it less. It, it doesn't matter. We don't make it anymore. So if you love it more, buy more cigars from another factory. If you have issues with it, uh, the guarantee stamp does not say Nico Sueño, so you should know that. I, as a factory, wanted people to know that that was no longer made in our factory, right? So um, regardless of what Jim, the brand owner, wanted, I wasn't going to have my name still on the line for something I no longer controlled, Right. Yeah, but I, and I go back to, I would venture to guess that the vast majority of blend changes where a factory it, it changes the blend for a client's cigar, the factory's not telling the client that the blend's changed, and the client probably doesn't notice. I think that's true. But <laughs> it again, happens every of, day. Not, yeah, exactly. None of that is new. Uh, but I will concede no. sort of Abe and, and Skip's point that, you know, certainly the average cigar smoker today is certainly more educated or has access to more information than they, than they did in the past. And hopefully I I think are paying more attention to that. And I think that's a positive thing. I think that, you know, ideally cigar smokers should be educated. Cigar smokers should be asking questions of the retailers and, and they should hopefully be getting good information uh, because I think that's positive for the industry. I mean, you know, they should be asking the question of, Hey, did this change factories? I mean, that's a good conversation to have. And, yeah, you know, but John, hopefully... I mean, you're a member of the media. How many press releases have you gotten saying we've changed the blend? Yeah, it's rare. And, and you know, but, I can think back to... to... not relevant for all this information. I mean, look, I drink wine. I like wine. Went to Napa. I drink a lot of wine. 
I'm not hunting down or getting to me. The majority of our our consumer base is not even interested in most of this information. It's yeah, a- but but every person watching this show is. Right, and there's 26 now, and it'll have a few hundred or thousand views. It's such a small segment that's right. deeply into this. I mean, I, I mean, I, I consider wine and cigars similar, you know? Right. And I, I, I couldn't tell you much about anything about wine. I, I kind of know what I like. I try stuff. I've been in Napa, but I'm not watching media guys on wine. I'm not reading Wine Spectator. I'm not doing the reviews, but I enjoy it, and I buy it. And I drink it, and I think that's the majority of our consumer base. But the the problem with wine in the comparison to cigars, and I remember emailing Michael Urklotz probably a dozen years ago at this point, when I was sort of getting started about writing cigars, was, you know, in the wine world, if you lay out five years of the same wine, but five different vintages back to back to back to back to back, the expectation if we pour them is that they're going to be different. You know, Carlito was in the chat earlier the expectation when you buy a short story is that it should taste the same today as it did five years ago, as it did 15 years ago, as it tastes five years from now. Not the same cigar. But when you walk into a store, buy a short story, cut it, light it, smoke it, it's supposed to taste the same every day of the week. Yeah. And the, the expectation, because of how we've sold cigars, is that that's the case. We don't sell them based off of vintages for the most part. And our consumers don't expect that. And so the issue I have with, like, I agree with you 100%. Vast majority of consumers could give a fuck and aren't even going to bother to look to see what the binder is on 99.9% of the cigars they smoke. The problem, though, is that the consumers that do care, when they're told the binder is Indonesian Basuki and all of a sudden it's Ecuadorian Sumatra, like their knowledge base, and this is the same thing for us in the media side of things, like their knowledge base is under the operation that it's Indonesian basuki and Indonesian basuki tastes this way. And if it turns out that they've been smoking, you know, Ecuadorian Sumatra binder for the last seven years, but they think it's Indonesian, that's an issue um, because it, it leads these consumers to, to have a, a bad basis of knowledge. Um, I don't think that it's in cigar companies' best interest. It's in Half Wheel's best interest, and it's certainly I would appreciate it if they disclosed the blends and when they changed the blends, but that, that just doesn't happen. And so, you know, we end up with cigars that have been on the market for 15 years that have nothing in common with the cigars, you know, blend varietal-wise as they were 15 years ago. And quite frankly, and, and Skip can attest to this, I'm sure, if you were trying to make a cigar and you're trying to make it taste the same every damn year, you, you are to going it. to have to you're going to have to go through so much tobacco in order to make sure that the blend recipe is exactly the same every year. And you're going to have to be buying just every year more and more and more tobacco just to make that one blend or you're going to have to change it. And that change could be we increase a, a there's a quarter leaf in the filler, we increase it to a half leaf because one of the fillers changed or the binder changed. Or maybe it's we completely blow the blend up, but we're trying to blend the cigar to taste like what the base blend tasted like six years ago. Um, but it, it's in the wine world, in some ways, it's a lot easier because the expectation amongst the wine consumers, particularly the ones that pay attention, is that you know a 2013 cab from the same vineyard should not taste the same as the 2014 cab. And if they ever tasted identical, people would have a lot of questions. Yeah, to me, well, the analog is more closely related to Scotch whiskey, where the the flavor profile, the appearance, the bottle, even down to the coloring, 
for if you've got a mainstream brand, it has to be consistent. You know, going back to the short story, if that if that wrapper changes color one shade, somebody who buys a short story might actually notice that. And so, you know, that is an ongoing struggle. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, and Skip, you've talked about this endlessly, and I think it's good that more educated consumers, I think, are better. I, I would prefer to see more educated consumers. I think that leads yeah. to a healthier market and keeps keeps manufacturers and brand owners honest, frankly. Yeah, and that's that's actually exactly what I was going to say. Can we all agree that that having better educated consumers is is a good thing? One thousand, you know, in, in the cigar market, you know, not not like Charlie said, not getting back to, you know, the the wine era because vintages play such a key role in 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 wines, but you know, having having more members of the premium cigar consumer base who have one percent or three percent or five percent better knowledge about what really goes into the products um has got to be a good thing and hopefully more percentage but got to start somewhere i mean i'm gonna say yes but charlie's gonna come up with some pedantic argument against me (laughs) (laughs) no i agree but but it there are there are great i think at the end that's the, the the way you have to go especially if you're a brand like mine if you're if you're a brand that wants to sell five million cigars a year maybe that works against you more than it works for you i don't know maybe it's better that because your market is a different market but for the people and i and i always assume we were talking to the audience of this show right is is that for those people the answer is yes and look the bottom line is if you change the fact that you're right that you do change that you actually change the blend every year in a lot of cases in order to try to keep it the same right i i don't get all my jalapa seco from the same place i'm looking for a very specific kind of jalapa seco fermented a certain way i don't like what what manzana of what farm it was grown on i don't care right that's me but when when you change cigars from one factory to another you walk into a factory, you can smell the factory. When you open the box, you can smell that factory. It, it, I believe it is impossible to change a cigar from one factory to another, or it's very, very, very difficult on any car that ha- any cigar that has any kind of nuance or complexity that where something doesn't change. Because it, cigars are not just a commodity that can just be moved from place to place to place. And this is part of our argument with the regulators, that – you know, where they're made, how they're made, all the little signature things that people do are, are what contributes to the, 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 the what, what I love about cigars. So moving it from one factory to another, good luck. Maybe people will like it more. Maybe people will like it less. But with, with my audience, at least, be honest. Always be honest. But going back to the consumers, um, I think educated consumers is absolutely important. But... I would actually advocate for non-consumers just as much, if not more, because if we don't change and flip the narrative that all tobacco is bad and we are continued to be put into the category of cigarettes and vape and everything else, um, you know, we're going to continue to see legislation and everything um, couple cigars in with all the regulations that. Yes you know we know about so my big advocacy 
is about non-consumers and telling the story of premium cigars and how they're different. Yes. And we'd like to thank Garrett for rejoining us from a 1985 scrambled Cinemax broadcast. <laughs> Max, right? Yeah, it was, Max, I was like, am I He's got the box. <laughs> Max Headroom. Watch, watching Dude. scrambled Cinemax. Next, he's going to broadcast uh, Mike Tyson fights. <laughs> <laughs> I had to drive up, uh, up the hill. I'm at the top of this hill off the highway, and I've got the windows open, and I've got moths the size of birds flocking to my dome lights. Why did we um, full size that? You don't need your dome light, trust me. I feel, I, feel, I feel like I'm watching an episode of Knight Rider right now. Nice. If we had to pick yeah, which I, one of these people was broadcasting from Nicaragua, no one would have any idea. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, we should continue to have these conversations and you know whether whether it's uh, one media publication or multiple media publications that are driving this, I think you know the the goal is to continue to drive it and I think it can, the, the end result can only be positive in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, last thing before we get to, um, uh, the next segment and there, so recently, you know, I, I'd say officially the announcement came out, you know, about changes at Davidoff with, uh, uh, with the Kellners and, um, is, is, do you guys, audio. And, yeah, and Eladio, thank you. Do you guys think there's anything to be said for the sort of the term, the the face of the company? Is there something to be said for that, especially when there's a long history with a with with a a single figurehead as the face of the company, and and as so many companies are going to be going through this over the years, you know where you know, the younger generation, you know, comes up, whether it's the son or the daughter of, of the current figurehead comes into the role of, of, uh, you know, being the face of the brand. It, it, is, is that important? Do you think, or, or is it more, more of a secondary importance? It, it depends on the audience. I think from a company, from the health of a company perspective, just in general, outside of like brand and marketing and other things, Secession planning is extremely important. And especially in the cigar industry where you have people who have, you know, like me and Saka and Abe and who have very, very strong personalities and very, very strong opinions about exactly how things should be done. It takes a deliberate planned effort to to spread out the responsibility and to grow and develop people in your company to do things a certain way. So that if I was, you know, if I you know, was killed on the highway going from Managua to Esteli. Hopefully I've done my job over the last seven years, which is to instill my, uh, you know, kind of ethic into my company. And if it, if it enabled the people in my company to do things the, the same way or the right way and to have an open mind about growing them beyond even where I thought they would be. Right. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure Carlos, uh, Carlito Fuente's dad, uh, went through an, a deliberate effort, just like uh, Orlando Padron did, just like uh, Alan Rubin is doing with his kids, just like um, and and you know. So that's the answer from a from a health of the company perspective. From a brand perspective, um, you know, so much so much of of everything we just talked about is based on perception and not real. 
right? And so um, does it matter to Camacho if Christian Aroa and Tom Lazuka are not the guys uh, behind the brand? Of course it does. But that doesn't mean that the brand has to, to fail. I mean, someone like Dylan Austin and the team at Davidoff can pick that up and do something completely different with it. It's not the same. Maybe it doesn't have the same consumers, but the brand lives on, right? And so um, I think the more the the individual personality has in control of, of – like the more control Abe has of what goes on at Smoke In, the more influence he has on his success – the more it depends on him, right? And 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 I'm sure Abe does has spent a lot of time over the last ten years making sure there's people around him who could do it if he wanted to take two weeks off or a year or whatever, right? Well, Abe, go. There, there, yeah, there's a couple different outlooks on this. Like, I have a plan in place. God forbid I get hit by a bus. Exactly written out who's to do what, when, and where, because there's a lot of lives that are dependent on this business running. God forbid something happens to me tomorrow. So, right. but that's different. I think what Matt was referring to is when, when you, I, I don't make decisions on a legacy level. See, and there are, there are companies out there that have legacies, right? So when the Fuente family or the Pendrone family, I mean, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to be here in Miami and I get to sit with George, you know, often enough where I go down and we have talks and, you know, these guys don't, these families like the Fuentes and the Padrones, they don't make any decision lightly. Like I know George will sit down and not only think about how this might affect his family name and what his dad might think from the grave, but how it's going to affect the next two generations of Padrones. So I think when you're talking on a legacy level, I think it's important because there's no, it's very hard for someone outside to understand that depth of mentality of the family and the name and the legacy that goes on. I think Alan's done a great job with his two boys. I love working with them. Um, they are awesome. They're, they're into it. And, and it's been, and it's been a reason. I actually talked with Alan Rubin at the trade show about how, what a great job he's done with them. They, they, I'm happy as pie to be able to work with those two guys. Um, but I, I think for people like, you know, the Fuente and the Padrones and some of these legacy families, um, you know, the Newmans, it, it's important to kind of pass it on and, 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 and to, to someone who's really going to have a deep attachment and understanding to those legacy names. You know, um, it, you know, it, am I thinking one of my kids are going to take over this business one day? I'm not. So, you know, I mean, that's not in my legacy plan. I don't have a legacy. I'm going to run this business until until when you know until when happens but um but but i'll give you an example abe so jose blanco was the face of la aurora right as we came into the social media area as we came into kind of consumers being really knowledgeable about what's happening at the factory when people were visiting factories jose blanco was the face of of la aurora and when jose blanco left it affected both jose blanco and la aurora right and so it does make a difference, even if it's not somebody who's a part of the legacy of the family, per se. Right? If somebody is that in front of I think of Jose a company, Blanco is way more known. See, I mean, you're talking within the industry. I think Jose Blanco is way more known today than he ever was with Miami and La Aurora. Well, I mean, okay. Anyone who didn't know who Jose Blanco was doesn't know what Hickey Kellner and Eladio's role is at Davidoff. So – 
I if agree. we want to have that discussion, no, no, then, no but I, I, I agree. Right. I think in that situation, um, a lot of people won't even don't even realize who Hanky Kilner is. I've said it to my consumers, and well, but they they know the brand Davidoff. I don't I don't think the brand Davidoff is as tied to that family um, as maybe it was. You know, I, oddly enough, um, uh, you would think with social media. And, and, and news, it would be more attached. But I, I don't think that's the same as somebody like the Fuente or Padrones or, yeah. or to pass it down. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's the same. Is it? I, I don't think it has the same weight. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And my and my question was really more geared towards the 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 public perception and the and the the marketing <laughs> aspect more than the 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 business and operational side of things. It was, it's, it's really more kind of consumer driven as far as there, it has become more commonplace, especially in the last 10 years or so with social media and, uh, and things like that, where the, there are so many brands now that have a face to the brand that maybe in the past, it wasn't as important or necessary for some brands to have, have a, a sort of a, a face to the brand. And that seems to be very okay. commonplace now. I'll give you an example. Like how did it affect Quesada at all when Terrence Raleigh switched to Aganorsa? Yeah, but he was the face. He was that's the what, face. That, but that's what we're talking about, right? A hundred percent, yes. He, but he was the face. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's the question. But I think the problem with the Quesada... The problem with the Quesada example, though, is like, there was a lot of other shit going on there that absolutely affected the brand. Of course. Of so, course. like, it's impossible to to separate and isolate Terrence's departure out of that. Like, true. Of, of so, all the, I mean, they went to a revolutionary. I don't know if it's necessarily a revolutionary in a good sense, but they went right. from having, you know, a warehouse in Miami, like every other company did, to shipping the cigars directly via UPS from the factory, like that that's a far greater change and sort of diminishes trying to evaluate whatever Terrence's departure had to do with 100, 100%. So here's the better question, Charlie. Aganorsa. I, I don't think half my majority of my clients know who Eduardo Fernandez is or, or Palmer. But that's a, I mean, Eduardo has made it that way. I, I got it. So what happens to an Aganorsa? You think of Charlie, if Terrence Riley, because, because I tell you what, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, he, he helped revolutionize the company as far as I'm concerned on a retail level to consumers. What happens to that, a company like that if he leaves? Well, I think in Agnos's case, yeah. um, it makes a big difference because it's such a relationship based company, both with retailers and with consumers. I think Agnos is an interesting one because uh, I think we can all be very honest here. The bread and butter of that business is not, uh, it may not even be selling tobacco, quite frankly, but uh, it's certainly not selling Aganorsa branded products. It, you know, the, the leaf business is far larger than the Aganorsa brand business, as far as I can tell. And there's a lot of other facets to it. I, I think in the case of of Davidoff, it's uh, it's a weird one because Hanky is both an ambassador of the company, and the, the company made Hanky the ambassador. And I, I think, for being quite honest, you know. A lot of the stuff that he was being credited for towards the end, uh, you know, Eladio was kept quiet. I remember reading about Eladio on Skip's 
you know, blog, which was extremely popular if you were a cigar blogger and was extremely unpopular if you were not a cigar blogger. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Eladio was mentioned, you know, Skip was ranking his top cigars of the year one year and it mentioned that he had gotten a hold of one of Eladio's birthday cigars. And he talked about the cigar and it got me intrigued to find out about who this Eladio guy was because Davidoff didn't talk about Eladio. They talked about Hanky and that was it. And when you started to dig a little bit deeper, you found out that Eladio really, you know, on the production side of things, uh, not the leaf growing. The leaf growing is hanky and the, the Kellner supply, you know, I would imagine to this day, a disproportionate amount of Davidoff's tobacco. But when it came to running the factory, that was Eladio's domain for, for many years. And, and Davidoff, you know, claimed that it was Hanky's domain. But it's it's tough. I, uh, Brooks and I were having this conversation earlier about Hanky and 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 sort of the, the broader topic. And I was trying to find an example because there really isn't one where you have an ambassador who also happens to be the most important supplier for a company. Yes. You, know, you take somebody like Willie Herrera. He's the master blender at Drew Estate. To my knowledge, Willie Herrera doesn't sell a single leaf to Drew Estate. Um, and and you, you sort of run down the list of the people that are marketed as this is the guy that, that runs our shit. Most of them are people that are actual employees of the company and, and they, that's what they do. You know, Esteban for Skip doesn't supply the tobacco. He buys the tobacco, but Esteban, to my knowledge, doesn't have 75 Manzanas in Esteli. Although if Esteban does, congratulations. He, he does um, now, actually. <laughs> oh, he's got a farm? Yeah. Think well, Esteban exists? Got, yeah, he's a farmer now. It's his third year, but yeah. But um, that that makes things really, really different because and it makes it really different when you try to process the news. And, and I, I'll peel back the curtain a little bit. Hanky has been out of Davidoff for a lot longer than a week or two. He he left the company. We had a we tried to write the story in September of 2019, and and you know Davidoff sort of was unwilling to admit that that he was no longer there, and Hanky was unwilling to sort of go against their word for whatever reason at the time. Um, because it so, makes a difference. Well, I, Re real I or perceived. I, I if I'm being quite honest, I think that Hanky wanted to have a different exit than what's taking place. I, I think Hanky wanted to have what he felt like, and quite frankly, I think he deserves a sort of a proper sort of finale of Hanky's retiring. He's, he's going to no longer be involved in the manufacturing aspect. He's still going to own a ton of farms and still going to supply tobacco for Davidoff, but it's not going to be, you know, Hanky in the factory every day. And I, I also think it's fair to say that Davidoff has a long history of not really being very good at exits when personnel leave. Um, and this is certainly a, another, you know, in a long list of it. Um, but Eladio leaving, you know, for me, uh, Eladio is, if I had to do the Mount Rushmore, I mean, he he's on it. I love the people like Esteban, the people that are, you know, in the background that really control what happens in a factory or what happens in a farm. And watching Eladio work in a factory is unlike anything I've ever seen with him. You know, the, the, the rollers or the supervisors would bring over cigars that were rolled that the supervisors approved on the floor. And Eladio would open up the bundles and he would go through the bundles and, and in this pace that was unfathomable of just looking at a cigar, feeling it, turning it. And he would just put it over his shoulder and be like, here's a cigar that, that's fucked up. And the supervisors would look at it and they would take like a little second and then they would they'd be like, I don't understand the issue. And then they'd 
you know, turn it around a little bit more and they would feel the knot that a lot of you have found in a split second. And so something like that, that's a, you know, if, if the Kellners are going to still sell tobacco to Davidoff, um, you know, I, I think that that's extremely important and that would be a monumental shift in, in Davidoff's business. And I understand that's not the question that Matt was really trying to get at, but, you know, somebody like Eladio in the factory, I, I don't think there's a replacement for Eladio. Um, I've been, right, in, I mean, I, I felt the same. I mean, look, I'm, maybe I'm overly romantically involved in it, but you know, it, it, it literally, I'm not overly romantic involved in any part of the cigar process. And I can tell you it, that a lot of you is different. Right. It, it, like it literally bothered me for weeks and it changed my perception of, of the company when Benji left general cigar, right. Um, or Scandinavia or whatever you want to call it. Like to me, when Benji left, the whole company changed, even though there's still people there. I love like Rick. Rodriguez but how much of that was, was because the company was changing and Benji was just a casualty in that. Well, Benji just maybe I don't know. Because Benji I think that's be a great that's guess. probably a similar story to, <laughs> yeah. to what's happening at Davidoff. I think yeah. And Davidoff's a unique case because you guys were talking about you know ten minutes ago about you know the Padrones and the Fuentes. That that's different because you know Carlito's in the chat. Car- Carlito makes the decisions, and, but Carlito's also in the factory. That's yeah. not the case with Davidoff. Davidoff has right. a, a you know an ownership structure that's a family, and then they have a board. And then they have the management of the company, the people that Dylan reports to, and then they have the people like Dylan, and they have the people like Eladio or the, the you know who used to right. run it, uh, you know the people like Peralta that report to somebody who reports to somebody who reports to somebody, and, and the interests are different at Davidoff, you know from what I can tell, than they are at Fuente, where you know when you know Carlito's involved at so many different levels. From what I understand, you know, there's a brain trust, but then there's the management execution level. And at Davidoff, I, I don't think, you know, you know, Tom Reinhardt was here for a little while in the U.S. on the sales side of things. But there's not a Davidoff family member to my, or, you know, it's not the Davidoff family, but there's not a family member to my knowledge that's in the factory in the DR right. in Honduras. And yeah, that's a right. that's a big difference between all of the rest of the family owned companies that you talk about. Um, you know, Davidoff is a size of a company and, and it's gotten a lot smaller because they've sold off their other interests, but it, it was a multi-billion dollar company and most of that revenue, not the profit, but most of the revenue was not from premium cigars. It was from, you know, a candy distribution company more or less. And so trying to compare that to a company like Padron, where literal Padron family members are unloading containers is asinine. You might as well compare but, Abe's business at that point. But if we go back to the premise of the original question, oh, John, you're still here. I'm still here. I got to get my my five words in. I'm gonna I'm gonna basically you're, just. What you're saying, John, is if we don't focus on the pedantic aspects of the That's argument, right. but the actual um, question that was asked, the, the actual question that was asked, <laughs> is the average or even you know top Davidoff consumer going to know or or even be dialed into the fact that Eladio left? No. But as Carlito just said in the chat, and I wanted to say that 20 minutes ago, uh, things will never be the same at Davidoff with with Eladio departing. I mean, it's just not going to be the same. Does the average Davidoff But how much of that is Eladio departing, or how much of that is the decisions that led to Eladio not being there anymore? Yeah, and it's, I mean, we we may never be able to uh, tease that apart and really understand, um, you know, all of the implications of that. Um, but is 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 it going to impact the company? One hundred percent. Is yeah. the consumer going to know? Not a chance. Even the you know, like like Abe was saying earlier, if if you took the top Davidoff consumers and said Eladio, they almost certainly wouldn't have any idea who you're talking about. 
so, I don't. I I think that if you took the guys that are, because some of them text me, annoyingly, um, <laughs> uh, amongst the 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 super high end Davidoff consumers, I, I think a lot of them actually know, um, a lot more than it would be with most other brands. Yeah, I don't think that, it's the majority, but I, I think it's a decent chunk, um, and it's a chunk that probably can't be replicated at any other company, you know, barring the. You know, if Jorge Padron left Padron, that would be a monumental thing that's sort of unfathomable um, because of the way that company's structured. But, you know, I think Davidoff is a, a very different case. And I, I think in a lot of ways, Hanky in particular was very, very different than, you know, you look at any of the other people that are in similar roles from the marketing aspect to Hanky. I, I mentioned Willie Herrera. You take Rick Rodriguez, who Skip mentioned at STG. The, that's a very different position in a very different relationship to the, your employer than what Hanky had at Davidoff. And I think totally that's agree. why there are so many there are so many layers to this kind of topic because the, there are there are differences when it comes to figureheads and no disrespect to a uh, Terrence Riley or a Rick Rodriguez, but there are differences when 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 a figurehead or not even a figurehead when when somebody who is really in the in the thick of things, really making decisions that that keep the products on track for quality and production and things like that. When you've got, you know, the the short list, in my personal opinion, the the very short list of people that you can you can give a, a you know a high crown of you know wh whether you want to use the term master or whatever it is. Eladio is in that category as far as I'm concerned. Benji is in that category as far as I'm concerned. Carlito's in that category. Um, and there's, so it, that's what makes it such a layered conversation is because there are differences when it comes to what the consumer won't really notice from a brand perspective, but what they could notice six months from now or a year from now from a, from a quality or an availability perspective. I, I'm still upset that Tom Landry got fired and that that tony dorsett retired a denver bronco right i'm upset so, that abe's comment from the chat isn't featured on the screen oh i didn't see <laughs> so i mean you'd, you'd i think after all the web shows you know, abe, abe did he'd be hooked up for this congratulations to abe you have won the drew estate prize pack for best comment of the show which but this also makes you a great guest for uh, developing sphincters that's right. True. <laughs> it takes time, Abe. I would have figured by now you you know you'd be a pro. You'd have the uh, catheter installed prior to the show starting. Holy cow! That's just how it goes, brother. <laughs> so well, where do guys like um, Frank Lanaza fit into this conversation? Most well, he's, he's, no, no, that is he's dead. Yeah, yeah right. I know. Yikes! <laughs> Sorry. And, and, and his brain. And the oh, brands, excuse myself. And the brands he had are dead. I mean. Yeah, they died. They died with him. So they did. That's a great example. And he was. I. I. Uh, I'll say. How, how, what you know, is E.P. Carrillo? What is what is Carrillo cigars going to be without Ernie? That that's a that's a great example of this in in this conversation. Er, er, you know that that brand and that that man and that family. That's a that's that's part of you know this this whole thing. And I with, think, with I think Lissette could step up in a role. Yeah, of I course, agree. from, from all the practical perspectives. But, you know, it's it's the emotion. You know, I don't know. I, I've said what I said. 
Well, and I'll say that, that <laughs> I'll say that Frank Frankineza definitely is in that pantheon, that upper pantheon, you know, of, of people who have even people who have passed like Jose, uh, Jose Orlando, you know, uh, he Frankineza is in that category of upper upper echelon tobacco mines. But his yeah. brand, his brands went with him, like Skip said. Yeah. Um, so, oh, we lost John. Um, so let's, uh, oh, John's back. Probably need to hook up that colostomy bag. <laughs> you gotta hook up the colostomy bag. <laughs> and this is still, this is still two hours shorter than a coop show. Come on, Dave. <laughs> That's true. Listen, using William Cooper as a bar is not practical. <laughs> yeah, I need so, Coop to install or sponsor a fucking urinal in our lounge. <laughs> back on one of his shows. Uh, so John, uh, I'm going to need you to unmute yourself because John actually sent me a message with a, with a pretty cool question. I want this to be the last question before we get to numero de los muertos. Nice. But, um, so John, I'll, I, I'm going to butcher it if I ask it. So I want you to, I want you to throw it out there. I don't even remember the question. That was, that was, that was a lifetime ago. Well, yeah, it was earlier today. Yeah. (laughs) John, this is your chance to talk. I know. He's, so he's, got a, he's got to prompt me, though, because I don't I'll even remember the question for you. You said, what will the ripple effect of factories being closed during COVID and tobacco availability be down the road? And it's impacting the non-Cuban market and the Cuban right, market. Right, right. So we, and we kind of talked, we touched on it a little bit earlier in the show. And, you know, I don't want to make it a one-hour topic. But obviously, um, there's a number of different factors, uh, both in the Cuban industry, especially in, in the non-Cuban industry of uh, leaf availability uh, factories uh, not having, and Skip already talked about this, uh, not having the uh, capacity to necessarily roll at the same level. And at, at the same time, the demand is going up. So all of these factors are kind of hitting all at once. And so the, the question is really, you know, uh, I, I think it's going to be pretty impactful, but when, when are we going to see that? And, and how long is that going to, how long is that ripple effect going to impact uh, existing production and, and new cigar production over the next, say, 12 to 18 months. That's a great and This would be a good, good chance for there. Skip to... I, oh, I thought that great. was food. <laughs> no, it's another cigar. I'm on my third cigar. Oh. That's, that's coupe level. Yeah, I wasn't... See, I wasn't prepared for the coupe show. I didn't have a third cigar queued up. So now, you know, I'm, I'm drawn in this thing down to the nub. Uh, I, look, I, I think that the this is assumptive of a world where the demand stays where it's at, which, you know, I, I argued isn't going to happen. Um, I will say this. I, I didn't mention it when we broached this topic two hours ago. Uh, one of the largest uh, tobacco suppliers told me at the trade show a couple weeks ago that, you know, they're way behind on, on sorts and, and processing. And they're likely not going to get out of it until the end of the year at the, the earliest. So, um, you know, I, I think it's going to continue to affect that sort of supplier inefficiency that's existing right now. And, you know, in terms of when consumers see it, uh, consumers are already seeing problems. Uh, you know, we, we broached that topic as well. Um, but if, if demand stays constant, um, uh, what it's at right now, um, I would suspect that it's going to get a lot worse probably in, in 12 months. Um, but I, I don't, you know, that, that it, the question here is like, 
if it goes poorly, does it go poorly in the idea that Abe doesn't have cigars to sell? Or is it poorly in the sense that the cigars that Abe has to sell are not very good? Um, and, and, you know, I think it's probably a combination of both as the sort of answer to all those questions are. I think the upside that is there's a lot more good and great cigars being today, made today than ever before. So you're not going to have that problem of post-boom, you know, late 90s. Um, but, you know, look, consumers will find – look, I've seen it before. Uh, I've seen brands lose market share because they didn't have shelf space. So as long as there's good brands to smoke and quality cigars on the shelf, consumers will find find something to smoke. They're not going to stop smoking. I, I think that that's true for the most part, but I can tell you that I, I know a bunch of people who were really heavy cigar smokers that some disruption, whether their brand stopped making, whether their brand got sold, whether the price went up beyond a certain mark, whether the quality went down, they just took that opportunity to say, you know what, my wife's been on me, I waste too much money, it takes up too much of my time, I'm out. And so... The less of those kind of interruptions, the less of those kind of departures you have, right? Like I, especially in an environment where you're not building new cigar smokers the same way as, you know, as when, when I was built. As when, when Wayne Suarez, you know, handed me, a, 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 you know, a, a cigar 25 years ago in a restaurant in Virginia Beach, um, you know, that was a pro- part of the process of me becoming who I am today. And there's just not a lot of people being built that way as much as there used to be, I think. Well, Matt, like here's an interesting question that's similar to this topic. Like, do you think the, the negative, the more important negative effect is the quality of cigars or the supply of cigars? Or do you think it's the retailers? I, I I'll be honest. I think, in a way, I'm not to not to like short step the question, but I, I honestly think in a way they go hand in hand because quality retailers are going to notice when there's when there's a drop in in quality of cigars and that's going to affect what they sell. I think. Yes. Yeah, but you're you're in a climate where it's not advantageous to smoke a cigar for a, a, a large part of the year, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So but, what well, happens? Yeah. Even if one of those shitty cigar stores or, or the less than great retailer closes, like is that more impactful than if Company X is making bad cigars? If Matt was serious, he'd sit out in minus twenty weather and smoke. I'm just saying. <laughs> exactly, John. Exactly. The, there's the committed, and then there's the truly committed. That's right. <laughs> the, or what's the joke about the chicken and the and the pig? It's like you're you're uh, you're uh, involved, but I'm committed, or whatever. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. I, I think um, it depends it depends on the retailer, but as far as whether or not you know that retailer going out of business has a bigger impact than uh, a cigar brand starting to fail. But I would say, depending on the retailer and depending on the market, for the cigar for the premium cigar market in the United States as a whole, the the brand being solid is more important than that one medium to small retailer going out of business. Abe, your thoughts? I kind of agree with Matt's sentiment there. I mean, look, as far back as I can remember, there was always a percentage of retailers that were, you know, a good gust of wind is all it's going to take from the closer doors. 
Um, and that's just been that's just been part of this industry since I've been in it. So that's not going away, and I think it's always going to be there. Um, I, I think I think like I've said before, I think this is, even prior to COVID that we're living in a renaissance for consumers. I think there's more quality sticks being made um, and brands today than ever before. Um, when I've gotten this industry, it was the exact opposite. There was a lot of bad stuff being put out there. And I think as long as there's good quality cigars being made, it, it's healthy for this industry. I think, uh, like, I can't remember who said it, but probably some retailers need to close. Some brands need to go away. Um, that was I definitely think- skip. Yeah, a pruning. <laughs> well, I mean, I think any any healthy organism sheds its yeah. dead skin, yeah, right? 100%. I mean, you you need to have Every, new people coming in, and you have you need to have the bad people going out. When when bad people when bad people can hang around and and do okay, then that's a dysfunction in the system that that hurts the whole system. Every good plant needs a pruning, you know, and yeah. there's nothing yeah. wrong with that to grow healthily, you know. I mean, look, there are companies out there, brands, organizations, you know. Who, who, you know, are making five new blends every month, you know, six new blends every month. And anybody sitting on this panel is going to tell you the reality of that kind of a situation. So educated consumers, quality cigars, I think it's going to be imperative to have long-term health. And I, and I think we're there. You know, I, I think there's, her- listen, in any industry, there's hurdles. This industry has had hurdles before, but I'm optimistic. I, you know, I, I, I'm optimistic of what's to come. Yeah. John, you live in a market where retailers have closed. So, your thoughts? Yep. Well, <laughs> so, and, so and, now, so wait, hold on, Matt. So now Charlie is the. Uh, the oh yeah, uh, we've acquired. How about that cigar? That's right. It's how, it's how about this? Shut down it's, the beer site. We bought another cigar blog. This, this is how about this, Charlie? Now. Brooks will find out in six months. <laughs> hey, hey, Charlie. Just so you know, the retailers have closed in our market here too. I mean, it's you know, it's maybe not prevalent, but it, it's happening. Well, but your market's different because your market has a strong cigar brand and the retail level. Yeah. And and you're also in a market where you can do innovative things. Because I, I look at, like, if there was one thing we could magically wave that wasn't FDA to make the cigar industry better, it would be let's get policies where we can serve liquor in cigar shops nationwide. Yeah. You want to talk about customer acquisition? Yeah. That's the number one thing. It, it's the most important thing nationally. It's the most important thing locally yes. because having places where people can smoke and having a place where the business that's allowing people to smoke can be profitable is, you know, that that's vital. And, and when you have a place where you can serve liquor and make money off people sitting in your seats in a cigar store, it, it's a revolutionary concept yeah. compared to a place like, you know, most of Dallas or in Houston you know, run down the cities where that's not legal. Um, it makes it so much easier for a retailer when they can sell liquor and profit off of people smoking a cigar in their store. And and so, percent true. But how many retailers do you think can do it and don't? Uh, there's a, there's a ton. Yeah. But I also know that if in Houston, if that became legal, I, I would have to imagine that cigar sales in Houston, which has to be one of the three or four best-selling cities outside of the random-ass towns in Pennsylvania where the mail-order catalogs are based, like it, it would blow Houston's cigar sales up if they could allow for liquor sales in cigar shops. To, to answer Charlie's question, because uh, the, the timing is actually really good, um, and Canada is not an analog for anything that happens in the United States. As I said, our market is you know a drop, a literal, a literal drop in the bucket compared to the U.S. 
But, you know, there are going to be a substantial number of retailers going out of business in Canada. Uh, and, and that's kind of what the, the, the goal of the, uh, the government, the, the government, yeah, the government doesn't want smoking. They've made it clear. Yeah. Um, there happened to have been a, a weird, um, pork chop thrown to the retailers in Alberta, which came out of, I don't know where, um, where all of a sudden 25 years of, of, uh, very strict legalization or, um, uh, pro- prohibition has uh, been turned on its ear. And all of a sudden, uh, they've decided to allow cigar lounges, which is a, a pretty huge game changer for the province. So, you know, to your question, Abe, you know, my question for the retailers in Alberta is how many retailers are going to take a chance and jump on that opportunity to add a cigar lounge, which hasn't been around for, you know, 15, 16 years. Um, and as you know, is kind of critical to the business operation for a cigar shop. Um, so they've got a window of opportunity to do that at a time when they're under the most amount of pressure from plain packaging, from product not being available and from pricing being bananas. And it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how many, we've got one in the chat room who I know really well, uh, how many retailers are going to take advantage of that. And the truth of the matter is not a lot. And it's, it's kind of sad and depressing that, you know, it's a, it's a huge change to their business model for the positive and yet. Despite that, there's a lot of manufacturer uh, retailers that aren't going to take advantage of that. I mean, we only have four or five decent retailers for a city of 1.4 million people. Why so, do you think that is, John? Because if I was in Alberta, I'd be jumping into the bit. I think I think they've just been. I mean, I can't speak to all retailers, but I think they've just been beaten down by legislation, right? Like they've 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 kind of gotten into a place where they're comfortable with the way they operate their business. They don't want to take risks anymore because it's expensive. Uh, and you know, maybe they're a little bit cynical like me and they think that, uh, it'll go away. But, uh, I can tell you, uh, talking to the retail owners that are smart, if I was running a retail shop still in, in Alberta, uh, I'd be, I'd be talking to a, you know, a contractor immediately to get a lounge in as quickly as I could before they close the door in a year or two years or however it's going to get closed. It's just a matter of how long. So to sort of pivot back, I mean, like the fact that the door opened was clearly the result of someone very rich and very influential putting money in the hands of the person that made that decision because like I said, it's unprecedented in the history of Canada in tobacco legislation for that to happen. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but ultimately tobacco on a wide scale across Canada is, is kind of the days are numbered. Yeah. Well, Plus, all the, all the smart money's going into weed anyway. Right. So. Yeah. Really yeah let's get those weed lounges going. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we've uh, we've beaten that horse to death. And speaking of death, it Ooh. is time for this week's Numero de los Muertos. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, Numero de los Muertos is brought to us by our friends at Smoke In.
Dang, that was oh. a nice ad. That was a nice ad. Sounds like we're in a strip club. <laughs> <laughs> candy, candy stage two. Candy stage two. It's time for Numero de los Muertos, brought to us by Smoke and Garrett. What do you have for us this week? Or, or Max Headroom, what do you have for us this week? Right. Uh, um, well, first, I would like Abe's people to do my uh, OnlyFans intro. If we could get that done, that would be great. <laughs> wow. Wow. I'm going to skip right. past that. And I'm going to sadly admit I just learned what that was about two, three weeks ago. <laughs> How did you learn what it was, Abe? Please tell us. No comment. No comment. <laughs> it was brought to my attention. Really? <laughs> All right. This... About taking partial credit for that. <laughs> this week, our number is 30 on average in the U.S. Die from these. Oh, these, plural. On a, it, on average, thirty people a year in the U.S. die from these. Mm-hmm. Is it a medical procedure? No, sir. Does it involve a strip club? <laughs> <laughs> no, it does not. Is that uh, Carlito guessing again? No, that was Charlie. That that was Charlie's guess. We that was Carlito's first guess when he when he was commenting on the show once. It was he's guest strip club. Is it animal related? No. <clears throat> Does involve machinery. Loosely, yes. Is it related to current events? No. How how long has the average uh, death been at thirty? Is this a new phenomenon, or is this a so phenomenon that, that's that's a well, lot of it's research? A, it's a it's a ten year average. Ten year mm-hmm. average. All right. Man, fuck Mark Van. Slaterite for saying tapeworms. Uh, that hit home. It is not medical. Too soon. Too soon. From something you wear? Crushed by a car? That's Josh, you are way off. Somebody said grain bins, and they're probably not that far off. I think about uh, 26 to 38 people suffocate in grain bins every year across the United States. Are bins. any of the deaths related to Amish people? <laughs> No. <laughs> so it's not uh, technology related. <laughs> cor- correct. Is it something you wear? No. So it's not a belt. <laughs> is it back is to it, my original guess? Is it food related? It is not food related. Is Does it involve a phone? Not a phone. Is it job related? No. Is it hobby related? No. Are vehicles involved? Some may call these a vehicle. Well, it is a vehicle of sorts. Is it? Does it involve water? No, it does not. Is it skateboard? Num- num- number of people killed on uh, on uh, electric scooters, self-propelled no. scooters. No. Does it have wheels? Not, not how you're thinking. Does it involve a crane? No. Is it something that has to do with aviation or flying? No. Is this segment uh, like a worthwhile use of Abe's money? <laughs> <laughs> we think so. Is it is it wide scale across the United States or is it no? It's thirty specific? people. 
Well, but I mean, like, you know, is it is it concentrated in a particular uh, state or is it across it's the United not, States? Yeah, it's not regional. It's not regional. Oh. Give us is another it? hint. Uh, yeah. Um. Oh wow. It was a terrible segment. <laughs> Jay Davis asked if um, it was colostomy bags. It is, it is definitely not colostomy bags. Um, this is uh, <clears throat> it is it is transportation in a way. Um, zip lining. What's that? Zip lining. No. Wow, we're we're in the weeds now. Yeah, we're definitely in the weeds. Yeah, does it involve aircraft? It no, that's not... been answered. Asked and answered. Oh. Asked and answered. Um, it's not animal related. It's hold not up, it's not. Related. It's not. No, it is, it is transportation related. I thought right, it but is. loosely. It is loosely transportation related. Dog sledding. <laughs> no, that's good though. Uh, drones crashing into people and killing them. No. Um, does it involve mountains? No. So some of these involve buttons. There's buttons involved. Elevator Ele- elevators. Elevators. Yes. Elevators and lifts. Uh, escalators. Escalators, and, right? And escalators. Wow. I I could not. So the CDC did not separate out um, the difference between elevators and escalators, and they lumped them together. But How against the, against the number of people transported in escalators and elevators in a yearly basis, I mean, that's got to be in the hundreds of millions. Abe, I think you more. should make them redo this I, segment where we guess what OnlyFans account the pictures I, come from. I, <laughs> I think I feel like I could get that on the first I, guess. I have a motion. That or we put up like a picture, the profile picture, and we guess like the over under on how much like the OnlyFans monthly subscription is. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have to change the ad, Abe. The ad's great. Wow. My first answer would still be autoerotic asphyxiation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to related, how, yeah. I, I want to know how somebody dies on an escalator. <clears throat> well, uh, first horribly. of all, uh, it, 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 they're unsupervised kids, most of them. Okay. O- o- right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It can it, It's not pretty when it happens. I'm sure. No. Oh nope. No. Hey, what? what <laughs> What you were about to interject, Abe? What were you an elevator said? could constitute as some form of aviation. Hey, they, they, <laughs> you're not really like, flying, though. To, to answer Sean Miles' question, because he wants to know, Sean Miles wants to know. Sean Miles, Sean Miles wants to know how you die in an escalator, and, and the way you die in an escalator is you have a piece of clothing trapped, and then you either bleed out or you wow. suffocate uh, because you're you're basically crushed in the elevator until and and they can't even if you hit the emergency stop i know too much about random things all right uh, Matt, even run if that true estate outro yeah <laughs> even if they hit the emergency stop uh you can't just back an escalator up you have to you have to pull it apart and unfortunately there's no one on call to come and just pull you apart from an escalator so once you get yeah. trapped uh you're you're toast hey Ooh. garrett has the cdc studied how many people have died watching a cigar coop show <laughs> Wow. From from bladder, uh, no. Okay, yeah. I, I do want to say Liver one poisoning. thing. Uh, so so Matt, if you'll indulge me for a second, I just want to say on some public forum that if Drew State doesn't 
somehow incorporate a who shot JD theme uh, at the South Fork Ranch, uh, they've missed a they've really missed an opportunity. There's but the, but we're we're older. There's so many younger cigar smokers in their 20s and 30s that have no clue no what idea. you're talking about. They could do like a mystery dinner party where we all get. Yeah. 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 But See, then, I was gonna, it's a cliffhanger gonna, until next year's event. <laughs> it's a cliffhanger. Totally. <laughs> See, if we if we weren't going elevator deaths, I was going to probably go uh, people choking on uh, eating eating steak at a restaurant. But, uh, you know. <laughs> well, that was this week's Numero de los Muertos. All right, so let's move into uh, this week's Notable Smokable. And as always, Notable Smokable is brought to us by our friends at Ace Prime. Notable cigars, notable passion, notable purpose. So each week, we uh, each name a cigar that is notable to us that we smoked this past week. It could be something that's been on the market for years that we just revisited for the first time in a while. Or it could be something brand new that we just smoked for the first time. Uh, so, John, let's start with you. Did you smoke anything notable this week? I did actually. I smoked uh, Partagas Lusitania from the um, two thousand. Gosh, it's sixteen years ago. I'd have to do the math. Two thousand five uh, limited edition humidor uh, that a good friend uh, gifted to me at a form. We were just watching Formula One and smoking, and so that's a sixteen-year-old cigar from a humidor. And I don't remember what the original cost of that humidor was, but it was in the. You, you could only buy it at the festival, and it was many, many, many thousands of dollars. Uh, so that was that was kind of a bit of a unicorn because I'll probably never get to smoke one of those ever again. Nice, that's awesome. And you owe Steve Saka twenty five dollars for saying unicorn. Nice, um, <laughs> uh, Charlie. Is there something notable you smoked this week that kind of fits that uh, criteria? Uh, yeah, I smoked um, on Saturday. Night, I smoked a Don Carlos Lancero. Um, oh. Carlito. I don't know if he's gone to bed yet, but. Uh, I would highly recommend that Arturo Fuente make a Don Carlos Petit Lancero. They exist um, in very limited quantities, but uh, we have been urging him to try to make that as a regular production cigar. Yes, I echo that. Can't um, you just cut them in half and put a cap on? <laughs> isn't that what you do? You, you. I mean, skip for that. Uh, <laughs> well, speaking of uh, skip, skip. What was your? Did you have a notable smokable this week? Man, I'm. I probably smoke as many cigars from other people as anybody who makes cigars. And this whole month, I've been in San Juan del Sur with a bags of my own segundos. So I think the last notable thing that I smoked was a new tobacco uh, that I had that I hadn't smoked before. Um, and uh, and so yeah, I have nothing. <laughs> I have nothing new to add to this segment the craft the craft 2021 which uh, ships today so if i'll plug my own thing i've been smoking a lot of those and uh i you know i really like them nice um abe what about you honestly it's gonna have to be a cigar i smoked tonight this 20 year old ashton vsg smoked in a nub that was given to me by a good friend longtime friend and patron uh, tom jordan thank you I don't know if you're gonna watch or see this episode later, but I actually smoked the cigar tonight during the show. It was amazing. Did the uh, did the band say cabinet on it, or is that? I think it's after the cabinet bands. Is there, it one of the? Is it one of the round ones, Abe? No, it's definitely it after the rounds, press? but it might have been the cabinet still. Yeah, I think the only round VSG is the one in the tube. 
No, no, no. There was the first no, there was uh, a... two years were round. Right. Oh, back in right. the day. Okay. And yeah, then they box was... pressed them. That's why I was asking if it was round. No, it, it was... wouldn't have been round. It might be. It might still say cabinet on it, the band, though. My band does not. Yeah, I think nope. it was slightly after that. Uh, Garrett, did you have a notable this week? I did. Um, breakfast yesterday, I had a black Irish by this one guy. Um, Mike Rosales. his name. Mike Rosales. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, it was <clears throat> it was fantastic. Gifted me, gifted to me by uh, my my guy Raul, and uh, good job, Skip. Uh, it was my first and delicious. It takes a village. <laughs> uh, my notable this week was the new size of the Crux du Connoisseur, the number four. Mm. Uh, just smoked it uh, a few days that's ago. On, that's on my list of ones from the show that I want to smoke. Yeah, this is not uh, a trade show podcast. It's <laughs> <laughs> I prepared it's, a list just in case it was. Yeah. No, it's a, but it's a good, uh, it's a great size addition to that line, and I'm I'm glad that the line is back in general. But uh, I'm very glad they added that size because uh, it's that's everybody knows that's my uh, that's my wheelhouse. So that was this week's notable smokable, brought to you by Ace Prime, improving lives through fine cigars. Visit aceprime.com to learn more. So to give our viewers and listeners just a little idea quickly of some stuff we have coming up next week on August 2nd, we have Emmett and Zane from Blind Man's Puff on the show. And then the following Monday on August 9th, we have Juan Martinez from Hoya de Nicaragua. Uh, so I just want to say thank you to all of our panelists for joining us this evening and spending a very, very long broadcast with us. We I think we covered a lot of fun topics and you guys are, we have you on because you guys know so much and honestly we appreciate you sharing all your knowledge and your feedback with us and you know hopefully us as uh, uh, consumers and everybody watching and listening uh, was uh, you know had their listening ears on because I think there was a lot of good info out there this evening so thanks everybody for being on the show thanks for having us thanks for having us thank you so uh, I will uh, I will close out the show now. I want to thank our viewers and listeners, as always, for being the best part of How About That Cigar. Uh, if you did not have a chance to watch live, then thank you for watching after the fact. And thank you, as, uh, as always, for listening on the audio podcast. Uh, if you guys have questions for Garrett or myself, as always, you can email us on HowAboutThatCigar.com. Be sure to follow us on all social media at HBT Cigar. And until we see you guys next time, burn cigars, not bridges. There's Garrett, not bridges. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you later.